The court is now in session for the trial of Mr. Jones. Is the defense ready? Okay, Phoenix, it's the last possible day you can defend your client. The autopsy report shows the victim, Barry Graves, was killed by a single hit on the head from a rock. A rock covered in blood with the defendant's fingerprints on it was found at the crime scene where he was arrested. There's also photographic evidence of the defendant hunched over the dead body. And he was wearing a white t-shirt with the words, I love beating people to death with a rock printed on it. Things aren't looking great. I have no exonerating evidence, but we have to power through and hope the prosecution makes a mistake. Your Honor, both me and my psychic teenage protege who occasionally takes the form of her older sister who is also my deceased mentor are ready to defend our client. Yes is enough words, Mr. Wright. Is the prosecution ready? Yes, Your Honor. Very good. Jesus Christ, what is that accent even supposed to be? That, my dear boy, is the sound of class and money. Something a lowly rookie defense attorney like yourself wouldn't be familiar with. Fuck you, Edgeworth. Fuck me yourself, right? Gentlemen, we've talked about this. Please put your sexual tension aside and present your evidence. Your Honor, I have decisive evidence that will conclude this trial. A witness. The person who took the photograph of the defendant killing the victim. Please state your name for the record. Uh, my name is Gilbert T. Party, but you can call me Gil. Are you fucking kidding me? Please, Mr. Wright. No disruptions. Mr. Guilty Party, was it? Please provide your testimony so that we can put the matter to rest. Of course, Your Honor. I was in the park at the time of the murder. I'm a bird watcher and I like to go to this particular park and take pictures. It was an especially sunny day. All clear, no clouds. I set up on a hill near an open field where the birds were perched. It was a lovely day. I saw two people, Mr. Jones and Barry Corpse, walking together. They were in the way, but I also couldn't shout for them to move without disturbing the birds. I was just about ready to shoot when one of the birds suddenly flew up in the air. I took my shot as quickly as I could, and that's when I saw the cause of the disturbance. Mr. Jones tackled Barry to the ground and beat him to death with a rock. I just meant to photograph the point flying away, and you can see that in the photo. But more importantly, you can see Mr. Jones on top of that poor victim. Thank goodness I caught that murder purely by accident. Hold it! Gilbert. Call me Gil. Guilty party. You said you're a bird watcher. But the park you were at was called Crow Park, named so because the only birds that congregate in that area are crows. Now, crows are a common bird in America and Japan, and we live in one of those countries. Why go to the one place we are guaranteed to see only one kind of bird? Well, uh, uh, I'm fascinated by crows. Yeah, in fact, I consider myself a bit of an expert on them. Crows are highly intelligent creatures. I mean, like, they've been known to make and use tools. In fact, they have the same brain weight to body ratio as humans. I've read plenty of books, but the best way to get to know crows is to observe their behavior in the wild. And Crow Park is the best place for that. Yeah. So you, as a bird watcher, went to Crow Park on that particular day, specifically with the intention of photographing crows. That seems awfully strange because you mentioned it was a particularly sunny day and- OBJECTION! Your Honor, this small talk is a waste of time. The defense is talking about birds and the weather, and we're supposed to be talking about murder. Of course the bird watcher is going to go to a park named after a bird. 
We know it was a sunny day because there isn't a single cloud in the photo of the murder. Maybe if Mr. Wright's head wasn't in the clouds, he'd stop fixating on the sky and talk about the murder that happened beneath it. Edgeworth doesn't want me to press the witness, but he's my only chance at proving my client innocent. I have to think of something. As a matter of fact, the sky is relevant to the case, Edgeworth, because, uh... Don't you think it's strange that a bird watcher would bird watch on a cloudless day when it's an activity better suited for more overcast conditions? Maybe you're better suited for bird law, bird brain. Gilbert? Call me Gil. Guilty party? Oh shit, oh no. Guilty party may be a lousy bird photographer. Hey! But he caught the murderer, clear as the day itself. Your line of questioning is about as relevant as a Ligma report. Are you seriously trying to ligma balls in the courtroom, Edgeworth? That's amateur stuff for a prodigy. I learned all about ligma when I was at Updog. Oh, you are not going to make me fall for Updog again, my dear boy. You're clearly distracting from the serious murder trial because the Bofa files prove you have nothing. Oh, you're trying Bofa these nuts now. You really are a child, Miles. It's like we're back in elementary school together. I don't understand the deal with these guys. Are they married, divorced, or fucking... I'm not entirely sure, but I always figured they were divorced and fucking. Eat shit and die, right? Eat shit and live, Edgeworth. <laughs> Enough shit talk. Edgeworth raises a good point, though, Mr. Wright. How is this person's hobby related at all to the case? The prosecution argues that this witness in their testimony is decisive evidence of my client's guilt. The witness took the photograph. The witness is giving their testimony. Their perspective is the sole narrative this prosecution has. I have a right to scrutinize it. He was taking pictures of birds from a considerable distance. It was a bright day outside. He wasn't aiming at trees, but an open field. These aren't optimal conditions for bird photography, but it is basically the perfect setup to shoot a murder. Almost as if the witness knew something was going to happen ahead of time. I think the witness is framing the defendant. Objection! That's a ridiculous claim. Do I need to remind you that the defendant was wearing a shirt that literally says, I love beating people to death with a rock. That's crucial evidence. I have a Smashing Pumpkins shirt, but that doesn't mean I smash pumpkins. <clears throat> Nor does it mean that I agree with any of Billy Corgan's political views. Make sure that is also on the record. I'm not wearing a shirt under this robe at all. That wasn't helpful at all, but thank you, Your Honor. You're welcome. The prosecution is right that the shirt is crucial evidence but it doesn't prove my client's guilt. It exonerates him. Explain. The autopsy report confirms the victim died from a single blow to the head, and a rock was found on the crime scene with the victim's blood on it. That must have been a heavy blow. A lot of blood must have been spilled. Gross. And yet, not a single drop of blood was found on the shirt that was collected for evidence. Impressive, considering the mess the blow made. Objection. The defendant could easily have moved out of the way after striking the victim. Take that! Except that you can see in the photograph that the defendant is on top of the victim. <clears throat> but this doesn't change the fact the rock was used to kill the victim. And nobody else was in that field. You can see that in the photograph the witness took. The killer has to be in that photograph. The killer is in that photograph. Then who is the killer? The crow. Objection! What the fuck? You're looking at the picture wrong. The picture doesn't show the defendant tackling or attacking the victim. It shows them on top of the victim. 
The crow dropped a heavy rock on top of Barry Corpse's head. He falls over and the defendant goes to the ground to see if they're okay. He finds the rock on the ground next to their friend and picks it up to discover it has blood on it. Nobody sees the crow drop the rock from above because it's so bright outside and, oh, in a dick, right? I'm sure you'd love to see that, Edgeworth. But the only thing anyone is going to eat today is crow. You're suggesting some dumb bird acted maliciously and murdered a man. What motive would it have? You should have paid attention to that conversation about crows earlier, Miles. As Gil explained earlier, crows are quite intelligent. They've even been known to use tools. As for the motive, maybe we can ask Gil. He's the bird expert. Uh, oh, I don't know that much. Uh, bird watch is just a hobby. <laughs> but you mentioned earlier that you're an expert on crows and read a lot of books on the subject. You didn't lie on the stand, did you? Well, Gil, could you tell me what a group of crows is called? Uh, a murder. A murder of crows. Or should we say, murder by crows? Gil, you mentioned that crows are highly intelligent. Do you think that they could be trained to drop a rock on someone, killing them? <laughs> Your Honor, I believe that our crow expert here killed Barry Graves. Gilbert wasn't- Ka-ka-ka! Me, Gil! Guilty Party wasn't in the park because he was counting crows. <laughs> he trained a crow to kill someone. Isn't that right, Gil? One bird in your hand was worth two in the bush. I mean field. Objection! This is purely conjecture. You have no proof. And what's your proof? Guilty Party is a passionate crow enthusiast who is terrible at bird watching but great at accidentally photographing crime scenes. But, but you haven't identified the motive. How are we supposed to believe anything you say when you haven't even established the motive? Of course the witness has a motive. The victim was Sugandee's. Sugandee's? Wait, no! Sugandee's nuts, boy! Mr. Wright, are you not aware of your responsibility as a defense attorney? This is a murder trial, and you are not helping your case by thoroughly murdering the prosecution like this in front of everybody. I did it. What? I confess, I did it. I did it. I murdered Barry Corpse. I framed Mr. Jones. I used a crow to kill a guy. And if I have to hear one more bird pun, I'm going to kill myself. You got me? I did it, okay? Fuck. Oh. Okay. Well, in that case, the court finds the defendant not guilty. A bailiff, arrest the witness. You'll never get me! Crows, attack those pigs! Oh my god, the crows got a gun! Get down! Justice is served. Looks like I'm on top again, Edgeworth. God damn it! I thought I had you pinned. You switched up on me again, Phoenix. One of these days, I'm going to top you. Hello and welcome to Select and Start, the podcast about meaningful and memorable video games. I'm your host, Kiefer, and every episode I bring on a guest to talk about a video game that made an impact on their life. I have a wonderful guest with me today. They are a longtime Twitter friend, 
and also the host of Talking Trek to You. It's Kev Kozer. Kev, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Um, excited to enter the courtroom. Yeah. Law. Fun. Great. It's really exciting for me to have you on because this is a game that I actually played for the per- first time through you. And I'm also just super stoked to talk about that and my experience with it, as well as your personal relationship with it. But before we get into all of that, I do have to ask you, for the people who don't have the pleasure of knowing you, what do you do and what do you like? Um, I guess I should have asked beforehand, what do you do? How do I specifically answer that? But I, I'm just around. Um, I have a job that I don't really need to talk about on this podcast. Sure and but it pays the bills for me to like watch a lot of movies and television and play video games and go to the theater i do all sorts of stuff and what i like are doing all those things like i said and uh, doing them with friends uh this, this is why it's very exciting for me. like even if this is our first time meeting over voice and not just as text on like a social media app <laughs> very glad you got to play this game and we can talk about it oh yeah i guess specifically video games that i like i tend to go towards either like very crunchy platformer or like difficult contained experiences like your metroids or your um i don't know celeste is a reason one i really loved or for more like narrative pure narrative stuff like this game or oxen free or things like that yeah so this is this will be very fun yeah for sure now, you've, you've talked about this a little bit. Uh, you know, you post a lot about movies. You do a podcast about Star Trek. Mm-hmm. With all of that, would you say that you're primarily anything like television, movies, games? What would you say is like your main poison? It's changed over the years. But like when I was a kid, I was a huge gamer. That was pretty much all I did. Games and watching some cartoons. Now I've sort of shifted to more movies. I would say it's like movies first, TV, barely behind it second. And then reading sort of in between and then video games a little more distant forth. I try to keep up with stuff as much as I can still these days, but I play like a couple games a year at this point. But uh, the ones I do, I make sure to pick them well and they all are great experiences. No, for sure. And I don't blame you for that. And like this, all you know, the whole point of the show is to get as many different perspectives and experiences as possible. I've had people who are still relatively new gamers. I've also had published authors on literally the book of gaming. So varying levels of experience. I don't feel pressured by that at all. But I also empathize with it a lot because gaming is such a time-consuming hobby. And on top of that, talking about gaming and editing a podcast about gaming can be such a consuming hobby. So that's why like lately I've been gravitating a lot towards movies uh, over the last few years because they are very consumable and digestible. And there's a lot that you have to sit with and go through with a game. As much as I love that, and there's you know so many different types of games. I, I totally get it. Yeah, I the game I'm currently playing is Tears of the Kingdom. I bought it when it launched in May, and it took like a few months of playing like an hour a week to finally beat a temple, and then it clicked. And now I still am having trouble finding time to play it, but when I do, it's for like few hour sessions, and I'm really getting distracted and doing lots of stuff. And that one's really working for me. I don't usually go for open world games because there's so long and so many options. But Zelda's always been very dear to me. So, but yeah, that's sort of the thing. Is like it's I've, I've been playing that, picking away at it for months, just because of mm-hmm. time. Like you said, movies are easily digestible. TV, you can set up a structure, you can still work through it. A game takes several hours at least. Yeah, I mean, uh, I was actually kind of surprised by the length of Phoenix Wright: Ace Attorney because I'm not super familiar with the visual novel genre as an example. I was immersed in it. It was very much like the experience of like watching a long form television show. So that 
didn't bother me at all but it is just like you can be surprised how long a game even like a straightforward uh gameplay wise one can take to beat i typically ask uh, at the beginning of the episode you know like about people's you know video game experiences and you've given me a lot already talking about the time that you now have for games and like your childhood experience with games where it was like your main thing let's try and fill that in a little bit yeah you know, no community in the world likes to gatekeep more than the gamers so we do have to check your gaming credentials here at the top i'm going to make you take mm-hmm. the video game bar exam so to speak uh, let's talk about your childhood history of video games, who or what may have gotten you into it, uh, your relationship with it as it's changed through the years and you've gotten older and more into movies, et cetera, et cetera. What is your portrait of a gamer? Of course. So my dad bought an NES in college and he still had the NES when I was born. <laughs> so by the time I was like five or something, I was like plugging in Mario Bros, Legend of Zelda, Castlevania 3. Those are the three I remember the most. I think he had several other games, but none of them really clicked with me as much as those three games I never really got far into. But I mean, I was like five and six. I was just picking up the controller and goofing around with it. It really kicked off when my parents got me and my, my brother an N64 for Christmas. I think it was a couple years after it came out. Yeah, it would have been Christmas 98. I would have been six years old. And yeah, it came with Ocarina of Time and Mario 64 and... That was, I really got hooked then. I, we bought a lot of games to that console. Some of my favorites are I mean, the big ones like Banjo-Kazooie and Diddy Kong Racing. There's a little less known one called Mischief Makers that I loved. And oh, Star Fox 64 is still one of my favorite games. And I, I thanks to like, yeah. virtual consoles and things like that, I will still pick that up every once in a while and just play through it just because it's so fun. And yeah, so like N64 buying a lot of games, renting a lot from the local video store, which still existed back then. And we were pretty much a Nintendo family my whole life, just because pick one, and we want the one that plays Mario, Zelda, and Smash Bros. on. So I, I was, when I was much younger, annoying about this, and now <laughs> I'm whatever. <laughs> but yeah, I still have only really bought Nintendo consoles and played Nintendo consoles outside of stuff I can play on a PC. But yeah, GameCube, Wii, Wii U, and now I have my own Switch. Now I'm living on my own. And the handheld stuff as well, like Game Boy's. Game Boy Advances D- to DS line. So that's where like I know most of the video games I've played from. There's a lot of variety on the Nintendo consoles throughout the years, so I've gotten a good taste, I think, of a lot of different kinds of games. Yeah, there's so many different tones and styles uh, across the generations of Nintendo games that you do get a pretty good variety of things, uh, especially around the GameCube era where they were throwing a lot of stuff at the wall to see what would stick. They got a lot more open about taking on M-rated games on their console and like making games like Eternal Darkness yeah. or like Resident Evil 4, uh, things of that nature. And I then, loved Eternal Darkness. <laughs> I'm, I'd love to play it one day. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. You know, we've talked, you know, all these different consoles throughout the years. You've also talked about the handhelds and the game that we're going to talk about today is going to be on a handheld. What would you say is your favorite console overall if you had to pick one? I know you talked a lot about the Nintendo 64 too, but wanted your take on it. Yeah, it's a, it's a really good question. The most fond memories are probably with the GameCube. Metroid Prime is my all-time favorite game, if you put a gun to my head. I mean, there's a lot of variables there, but that's my stock answer. Wind Waker is, like, probably my favorite Zelda aesthetically and story-wise and such. I can't deny that Breath of the Wild and Tears of the Kingdom are better games to play, but Wind Waker is so special to me. And I'm I'm never a big Mario Sunshine fan, but, like, there's other, like, weird stuff on the GameCube that's fun, and there was just, like, a lot of good memories. Like I said, Eternal Darkness, as mentioned, was another was a weird game on there that was fun beyond good and evil 
I'm trying to go back to the memory palace, but there were so many just like oddball GameCube games that really stuck with me. So that's the emotional answer. I think the logical answer, though, is the Nintendo Switch. I can pick it up. I can play it on a couch if I don't want to look at the TV. I can play it in my room. I can play it on an airplane. And it runs really well. And there's so many great games on it. And even though Nintendo is really weird about their history, the stuff they do let through that history, <laughs> there's a good library there still. I mean, it could be bigger because video games are like the worst medium for preservation. But <laughs> as it stands still today, it's a great library. You can play most of the notable games on the Switch from the last like several years. Like You can get like every Final Fantasy on there now, which is crazy to think about considering a group in the era of Final Fantasy was strictly Sony. Mm-hmm. So... Because like, I just missed the one through six on the NES and SNES, so yeah, it's just very and it's just such a easy to use console. Yeah, I I think the Switch is such a wonderful little device. Um, mm-hmm. I almost wish they stick with it forever and don't make me upgrade it at some point, and then also have to rebuy everything on it. It'd be so funny if they did like a classic '90s hardware upgrade where like you get an attachment that will like make it more powerful. Yeah, like some weird like uh, Sega mega drive sort of bullshit um or the sega cd or whatever it was but uh no that you know totally reasonable answer not an uncommon one i think there's at least been two or three episodes at this point not including you where somebody's like well emotionally the gamecube but like actually the switch i think that's that's a pretty common refrain uh hamish in our in our wind waker episode definitely said the same thing but it's a it's a console that has so much broad appeal and you can see why it is like running up towards the playstation 2 in terms of being like the best-selling console of all time even possibly About a year ago, I did reach out to you in the early phases of making this show. And when I asked you back then what you wanted to do, you mentioned uh, The World Ends With You, which, like the game we're talking about today, is on Nintendo DS. Do you have like a special attachment to the Nintendo DS in general? Did you play these games on their original hardware? What was was that like with the Nintendo DS? Oh, yeah. I mean, I played both these games on the original hardware. I'll tease the pink track discussion, but basically I bought this within the first year of its release, I bought a lot of the oddball DS games too, like <laughs> Layton games, Rollins With You, as mentioned. I don't think I ever owned Brain Age, but like there was like a bunch of like fun experimental stuff on that console that was really cool. As well as just like, I don't know, the franchises actually weren't that well represented. The Mario games for the DS weren't so good, nor the Zelda games, and there wasn't really a Metroid for it, if I remember. There was Metroid Prime Hunters in the pinball game. Yeah, okay, those weren't great. But uh, the, the Super <laughs> Metroid 2 remake for the 3DS is what I was trying to get to. But, like, I did play a lot of DS. I own, actually, they're probably not with me. They're probably at my parents' house, but so many DS games. And I wish I could have a better memory of, like, what some of the other really fun ones were. But, yeah, there was just, like, a lot of, like, weird, like, again, sort of, like, oddball, not really franchised fun stuff on the DS that I played. No, yeah, for sure. Uh, I mean, like, I can think about, like, all the weird Nintendo DS games as long as well as the common ones, and they all broadly stick in my mind as fun things like you said you didn't particularly love the mario games on that uh console but i loved super new super mario brothers and super mario 64 ds uh was a was a fun one another one that i played a lot uh mario hoops three on three which was a yeah yeah i think that was a square enix or something to do with square enix because of who developed it uh what was another weird one oh the mario and luigi bowser's inside story also great that's right. The Mario and Luigi RPGs were really good on there. Yeah, I, I liked New Super Mario Brothers and Mario 64 DS fine. It's just mm-hmm. there's better examples in that franchise elsewhere. But um, yeah, the, the Mario RPGs are really good on the DS. 
Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah. It's funny you mentioned like, oh, you know, I played The World Ends With You and Phoenix Wright Ace Attorney with the year it came out. But like, I don't know if I played Brain Age Stone. Brain Age is like the fourth best selling Nintendo DS game after New Super Mario yeah. Brothers, Mario Kart and Nintendogs. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that's that's sort of the era where Nintendo was like, we're also a lifestyle thing, because that was around the same time as the Wii. So you had Wii Sports and Wii Fit. Everyone just had one, and they could, like, do these, like, video games connecting to life stuff that has kind of fallen by the wayside, I guess, because we all have smartphones that can do that for us now. But there was that window where it was, like, very interesting. Yeah, now, no, for sure. God, I really love the DS now that we're talking about it. It never really comes up on the show. But um, the Pokemon games on there, like uh, yes. Pokemon Platinum, uh, Heart Gold, Soul Silver, really, really good. Black and White and Black and White 2 are also DS games. Fuck. Okay. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Solid, solid console for RPGs. Oh, yeah. Dragon Quest Nine was a game I'm fond of that not a lot of people right. talk about in that series. I Yeah, I played. That's like one of the few Dragon Quests I have played, and that one's really fun. It is. It's really, really. It, uh, so I think that was the console I would credit with getting me into RPGs because there was that. Uh, the Pokemon uh, Mystery Dungeon series was also on there. That's not. That's more. That's a different play style. But like, I'm just throwing it out there because mm. things are coming in my head. There was a Dragon Ball DS game based on the Sand Saga that was like a turn-based RPG that I mm. loved that no one ever talks about, and I don't know if I'll ever get to talk about it again. So I'm saying it now. But yeah, no. Just since it was, it was a mix of people porting. Uh, that's how I first played Final Fantasy IV. Was on the DS too. Shit. Mm-hmm. But yeah, like so many ports and remakes of SNES and Nintendo 64 era games, as well as people like making their own dual screen weirdo RPGs that they can never come out again. Like they tried porting The World Ends With You on other consoles and people say it doesn't work as well. Just what, what a unique system. Yeah, I've, I'm just found like looking at lists of DS games. I want to shout out Elite Beat Agents, which is like a perfect game. That game is amazing. And also just like you could only do it on the DS. Uh, let's see, there is Ghost Trick from the same dev team as phoenix Wright, which was a really good puzzle game the zero escape games are really great there's good castlevanias on this console yeah the ds it was it was like a quiet like but pretty great little thing no yeah i would agree i guess it's weird to call it quiet because it was so well selling sorry to interrupt but i just realized that it's a weird thing to say because lots everyone owned one but yeah i think it's it's cultural impact is maybe like not as well felt today even though there's some fun stuff on it yeah, it's it's interesting, right? Because it's kind of folded in with the 3DS, which was like a thing that slowly became more popular and popular as it came along. But yeah, for the while, for a while, the DS was like, this is the moneymaker. Like this thing makes bank because everybody has one. And then the Wii too, like everything was doing well there. Like it was such like a an alienating time because PS2 and like eventually the Xbox 360 would become these like traditional uh, mainstays. But Nintendo definitely took some risks that paid off that generation. Absolutely. I mean, that's why I really associate Nintendo really like about them is that even when the risks fail, at least they, like, the risks, unless you're talking about the Virtual Boy, but, like, the risks <laughs> like the DS and the Wii U and the 3DS, some of them were commercially successful, some of them weren't, but they were all at least, like, gameplay successful. Like, the two screens, the touch screen, the, three, the 3D kind of, but it's definitely the Wii U gamepad, which sort of precursed the Switch. All of these were like great ideas that worked. It's just sometimes they're easy to sell and sometimes they weren't. Right. Yeah. Um, I think it was uh, Gunpei Yokoi, whose whole philosophy was like taking obsolete technology and doing something completely new with it to make it relatively inexpensive and very approachable to consumers. And that was definitely the philosophy of the Nintendo DS. It wasn't this like super powerful device. It wasn't a PlayStation portable, which is like a PlayStation one and a half you could carry in your mm-hmm. pocket. 
but it did have so much heart to it. And it was a way to onboard people who have a more casual attitude towards games, like with your, with your Nintendogs or your odd 2D platformer. And then also like, hey, do you want to like have your brain permanently ruined with weirdo RPGs for the rest of your life? What is Dragon Quest Monsters Joker? Would you like to find out? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. I never played that one, but I did play the original Game Boy Color Dragon Quest Monsters. And that was, yeah. So many great RPGs on the original Game Boy stuff as well. Yeah, those Nintendo portables were really great homes for those. It was. And it invited a lot of third party developers who really couldn't make things work out on the Wii the same way because like the Xbox 360 and the PlayStation 3 were so much more powerful. But that the DS was like, let's take some old stuff that we would put on there. Let's let's just do something that we can drop for thirty, thirty-five dollars. And that's another thing that now that everything is the Switch, which is a portable and a console, having something where me as a kid could more easily get $30 versus $60 for a new video game. I definitely appreciated that. There was definitely mm-hmm. a, an internal economy I made where it's like, okay, I don't have an income. I don't have an allowance, but I could trade a couple of these games and then get one or two used DS games for basically nothing. And that worked for a long time. So I played a lot of DS games because of that. Yeah, that is a good point. The one thing is, well, you're right. A lot of the new AAA games are 60, 70 bucks. At least, there is like a sliding scale with a lot of new games now where some of them are cheaper and you're not getting triple A, but like a lot of especially indie stuff that like can range from like five, 10, 15, 20 dollars. And yeah, I, I do like that there's now a much more sliding scale with game economics. This is a whole different discussion, I realize, but it's just got me <laughs> thinking. Yeah, and a lot of those kind of weirdo DS um, Wii energy, I feel like, has been channeled into the indie scene right now from games that look really cool that I have not had time to play. No, you're 100% right about that. Uh, I've never really like fully considered this before, but indie being the new handheld in that way, where obviously, like if you have like one of those like Steam decks or equivalents where you don't have an all powerful gaming PC, you can definitely take portable gaming with you. And the Switch being able to be this huge indie machine, and I use it as my indie machine more often than I do for the PlayStation. No, I totally get that. That you're definitely hitting a point there. Yeah. But, uh, you know, you talked earlier about uh, playing Tears of the Kingdom. And that taking up almost all the time you do spend gaming. What else in the past year or so have you been playing lately? Let's see. I really liked Marvel Midnight Suns. I thought that was just like kind of annoying at points, but the characters I liked, I really liked, and the gameplay was really fun. The Metroid Prime Remaster was really good. I mean, I just played one of my favorite games again. You can't go wrong there. What else? I mean, it's been so little. I have to like look at my Switch backlog and remind me. Pokemon Legends <laughs> was really great. Yeah, um, that was a refreshing take on the franchise. Yeah, I wish I could have had a bad memory for this. I, what was I playing a year ago? I can't remember, but probably some fun stuff. I get it. I mean, yeah, you say you're primarily a Switch person, so like it would make sense. Like that's where playing the Pokemon games and then Tears of the Kingdom, things like mm-hmm. that. Uh, how did you play Midnight Suns? Uh, on a Steam Deck. I bought one around the holiday season last year, and it's been working well for me. That's good. Yeah. Oh. I just did remember a really great game I played recently that I still need to get to the sequel of, but uh, AI The Somnium Files is in that sort of Phoenix right tradition, another visual novel, this time from the Zero Escape creator and writer, and that one was really good. So uh, yeah, I have the sequel waiting for me whenever I probably finish Tears of the Kingdom, I'll probably next up. Oh, that, that sounds great. Uh, you mentioned uh, Ghost Trick earlier, you know, that mm-hmm. coming from uh, the, the team that did Phoenix Wright, you talked about Zero Escape. And obviously, Ghost Trick is not necessarily a visual novel. It's a completely different kind of thing. But, you know, the other things you mentioned are kind of adjacent to that. I'm not going to get into a whole like what is and isn't a visual novel thing, because 
the website database for visual novels is constantly arguing about this and they call uh, Phoenix Wright a borderline entry into that. Mm-hmm. But do you have a fondness for visual novels? Yeah, I think it started with this game. But like, I lo- like a game that it's like a great story I'm experiencing with a little bit of interactive element, but it's not like a AAA game it's, and it's not going to take like a bunch of time like an RPG. It is just you're locked into the story of it all with maybe some light puzzles to break it up. And I think you can tell some really interesting stories that way. I love, obviously, the the Ace Attorney games, which I were talking about them. I love the Zero Escape games. Um, I have a complicated relationship with the Danganronpa games, which is kind of like the third big one. Mm -hmm. But there's still a lot of charm there that really attracts me. And I really, and there's so many good indie ones that I haven't even touched. But just these, like, story first and not in an uncharted way, which I have no beef with, but (laughs) would love to play someday, honestly. I think they're still PlayStation locked, though. But in a, like, like not this is a movie, but more book-like in nature. I think you can tell just such deep and interesting stories through that medium. Yeah, no, you're totally right there. Uh, quick aside, because you mentioned uh, you know things being Steam locked or not, uh, not I mean PlayStation locked or not. Uh, there are now a few of the PlayStation exclusives on Steam, which I think may go great with your Steam Deck. So like you could play yeah. Spider-Man on that and Uncharted. I don't think so because uh, I think it's only four in the Lost Legacy. So it's kind of like jumping mm-hmm. in uh, into like the fourth entry of a movie at that point. But uh, The Last of Us on there. So if you are trying to like find some onboarding into Sony stuff, I think the Steam Deck would be a good uh, vector for at least the big, big ones. Yeah, that, that's awesome. I'll definitely look into that. Yeah. And there's also other ways where people can do things with their Steam Deck that are funny, but I can't legally advocate for it. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, uh, in terms of like back on the, like the visual novel conversation, it's always been a genre I've been like super curious to jump into i've been curious about phoenix Wright for at least the better part of 13 years mm-hmm. whenever there was at least like Flipnote studios on nintendo dsi because a lot of the fan animations on that thing would be using um phoenix Wright models hmm. and uh that uh was like what drew me to the series and try to figure out what this thing was about and I, since then i've been fascinated but until last month i never actually played the games mm-hmm. and now i'm just curious like you know now that i've played phoenix Wright, this first one what other you know, entry level things would you say would be like the next logical thing to play? I mean, if you played this first one, you almost certainly bought the trilogy. So I would say yes. play the next two as well. <laughs> of course, I'm playing second run right now. Oh, nice. I'm really happy the Ace Turner series was like very locked to the DS consoles for the longest time. And I think recently they've become more widely available. I think like mm-hmm. the fifth and sixth ones also made to iOS, but that's kind of a weird way to play them. So that they're doing the second trilogy pack where it's four through six is really good. And there was the Great Ace Attorney, which finally brought those two Japanese-only 3DS games over to America for playability. I And I definitely did not uh, find some way to play that first one with the fan translation. No, sir. <laughs> um, this franchise is coming almost entirely available now. I think what's after that next second trilogy gets released, I think all that we'll be missing are the Miles Edgeworth spinoffs, which the first one is only for the DS, and the second one is only for the DS and also Japanese-only, and I definitely haven't... Uh, played that with the fan translation sure so yeah but basically just keep going with Ace Attorney it's really good mm-hmm. and I mentioned Zero Escape before and that's also like a very different tone from Ace Attorney but very good I don't want to say what kind of story it is almost it, it's very it's kind of like people get trapped in a setting and there's watches attached to them that are going to explode <laughs> that's uh, already almost saying too much but um, yeah it, and it's sort of escape the room puzzles as they work through this Mm-hmm. That they're exploring uh, with life or death stakes. 
And then the story takes a lot of turns over the course of three games. I really recommend going as blind as possible. That is another, like, it's escape the room puzzles instead of, like, whodunit mysteries. But otherwise, it's that same sort of, like, great writing, great characters, um, sort of visual novel goodness. That'd be mm. my big recommendation. Ghost Trick's a little more puzzly, but that's, like, another great story. And like I said, like, a very much in tone with the Ace Attorney games. Uh, Hotel Dusk was a really good DS game that I don't know how available it is now, but <laughs> that was also a really good story-based game. I think we were talking, I batted out Oxenfree as a possibility for this podcast. Well, I think you said you've played that one, right? I haven't played Oxenfree yet, but okay. it comes up pretty often. Yeah, Oxenfree and Kentucky Route Zero, which I need to get back to. I played like half of it and fell off. Uh, I'm but, playing um, through Kentucky Route Zero right now. Yeah. Yeah, like that's just what comes to mind. It's like sort of story first games. Mm. Like you interact with in interesting ways. And I love like both Tech Zero and Oxen Free, where they both do the same thing where your choices don't really matter, which sounds lame when I say it out loud. But instead, it's like the choices you make are like the flavor you're bringing to the character. Like with Tech Route Zero, it's more just like, at least as far as I know so far, it's more just like color and doesn't like, oh, I want to say this. And so I feel like I've said it. But while it was Oxenfree, the characters actually react to what you say, and you can like hurt their feelings or encourage them. And that, and even if it doesn't have much story impact, I think that is just like, wow, I feel like I'm really locked into this story. And that is a really fun little addition to this sort of idea of the like the light, short, or gameplay light rather, um, short in time lengthwise story focused game. Like I, I'm trying to avoid calling it visual novel because like a lot of these things have strayed so far past what a traditional yeah. visual novel is, like you were saying earlier. But that's sort of how I think about it without the catchy term is just like you don't need much physical dexterity. There's no like strategy or deep puzzle thinking involved. You just get to use your like story brain when experiencing it, which is very fun. No, I get it. Uh, like some of the things you described are not like not a visual novel, but also not a computer RPG. But like those things in between, where it's like story-driven narratives that, like you said, like are more mm. computer-oriented. And I'll come back to that point in a second. I'm just making sure that I have my notes right here. Zero Escape, which I wrote down as jigsaw game? Question mark. Basically, uh, yeah. Yeah, Hotel Dusk, which you said is probably still stuck in the DS, but that is not a problem if you had <laughs> a computer and a dream. And then. Oxen Free, I have uh, wishlisted right now. And then Kentucky Route Zero, I am, uh, I say I'm playing through. I am still on the first episode of it, but like I am actively playing it to eventually talk about it on the show at some point. Nice. And what you're talking about, like these games that are like some secret third thing between a, a computer RPG and a, and a visual novel or whatever, uh, visual novel adventure, whatever you want to call those. It's kind of in line with the like the Telltale games, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, like your Monkey Islands and your uh, what I my vector through this was the the first Walking Dead game that they did, and uh, the one I love the most, Tales from the Borderlands, which I don't really care too much for Borderlands otherwise, but love Tales so so much. Yeah, this is actually I'm glad you brought this up because it's unlock like a memory of why I love these games so much. One of the other things I did growing up, besides just playing Nintendo consoles was my mom would love these sort of adventure games on the PC by like Sierra and LucasArts and like Myst, which are a little more puzzle driven because you're like, instead of just like going from narrative scene to narrative scene, your, your character's walking through, picking up stuff for their inventory and solving what to do based off that. But like King's Quest and Monkey Island and uh, Siberia, like things like that are still like very engaging. And the, the, all the positive quads I just talked about without repeating them very similar ideas 
and just I think this sort of modern iteration just sort of streamlines the experience so it's like pure narrative and taking up the clunky walking from room to room bits. Well, Ace Attorney doesn't entirely do that, but it's almost a stepping stone from one to the other. And yeah, yeah I think there's really a lot of nostalgia there. I did, and that's another reason why these Ace Attorney games are so special. Um, both my siblings and my mom still play them and have played almost all of them as well as I. So yeah, they all love them. And it's a great sort of family thing where the four of us can still just connect over these games. Yeah, no, I, I, I totally get that. And uh, I also want to issue like a, a clarification on a thing I said a second ago where I said Telltale Games and immediately threw out Monkey Island. I know that's a LucasArts games, guys. Don't write in. But uh, oh, uh, there was a the fifth Monkey Island game was through Telltale. So you're good. I, yeah, I knew what you meant. Nine-ish one. But yeah, you're yeah. right. But uh, yeah, you know, your Day of the Tentacles with LucasArts yes. or your um, which is oh, that was on, a big one for me. Yeah. The remastered version is on the PlayStation. So like a, a lot of ways that people can play a lot of these games. You don't have to strictly play them on a the computer or on a switch even. But yeah, no, I have an attachment and affinity for these games and I can play them from time to time. But like, it's so interesting now, like going into a full out and out visual novel for the first time and seeing the seeing it be put into an even more rudimentary way that doesn't make them less compelling or interesting. Right. I mean, I know the traditional visual novel, which you sort of danced around is literally just text on a page and you occasionally have to pick a choice and that changes your ending maybe. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I haven't played many of those. I know Nintendo recently released like for the Famicom, the, the Japanese name for the NES, um, those, what is it called? But like they remastered some of the very old classic NES visual novels and put them on Switch. And they're available in America for the first time. I want to say Mystery Club or something like that. Like Famicom but, Detective Club, I think is what yes, they Yes, that's called. what it is. Yeah. yeah. And I, I'm interested in checking those out. But yeah, it's, it's a very long genre with a long tale that I think, yeah, these sort of modern ones sort of, blend the best parts of that with your monkey islands and day of the tentacles and king's quests and sort of create something that is a hybrid of gaming and story it's it's all very fun oh very soon i'm gonna start playing baldur's gate 3 because me and my siblings are going to do like like it's a classic D campaign we're gonna play it together okay so i have it bought i have it downloaded and we're gonna start meeting weekly to play through it as like a group like we're a D group Legit. But I think that would be fun. That sounds like a lot of fun. I'll have to avoid all the sex scenes. But other than that, (laughs) (laughs) yeah, that'll be really great. Yeah. A separate save file just to have the sex scenes in Baldur's Gate 3 would be a really good bit. We talked about a lot of games that mean a lot to you. We gushed about the Nintendo DS. You talked about some games like Oxenfree and AI and Mm -hmm. Kentucky Route Zero. Before we get into the main event here, are there any other games you want to shout out as personally meaningful to you before we talk about Phoenix Wright? I briefly mentioned Metroid Prime as my gun to my head favorite game. And I remember that was the first thing I asked about. You said it was unavailable, <laughs> which is fine. I'm, I'm glad someone else loves that game, too. And honestly, I think I'm glad I got to pick this one in the end of the day. But yeah, I love that one. I think I pretty much hit all of my other video game highlights. Mega Man, Zero Escape, uh, Xenoblade. I mentioned Tales of the Game briefly before. Tales of Symphonia is a huge game for me. Yes. Probably the game I've played through the most times, as, at least on terms of that size. Mm-hmm. Uh, me and my brother would like every few years when we were growing up together from the ages of it came out when I was 11 and I left the house and I was mid 20, 27. So we must have played it through like four or five times every few years just to keep just to play it again, because it's such a I see the seams in it, game, especially as I got older. But I don't know. I love that story. I think the gameplay was pretty fun and the characters really meant a lot to me. I mean, it sounds like you've played it right when you had that reaction. Yeah, no, I played it. 
because my brother had it on the GameCube years ago and he went away for a while, but like his games were still at the house. I was like, I'm going to play this and it made an impression. Yeah. So my super cool um, being non-binary backstory, I mean, one of several factors, but definitely Colette was like a female character who I was like, why do I feel attached to this person? That's not <laughs> right. I'm a guy. Um, and it took uh, several years to unpack that feeling. This better not awaken anything in me. But yes, that character is like so relatable and important to me. And that whole game is like very special to me. Yeah, no, it's a very, uh, like I got to go back and play it as an adult because as a kid, I didn't really get to appreciate the full nuances of it. Uh, you know, yeah. I was just like into the aesthetics of it and the art style and the fact that the main character was voiced by Robin from Teen Titans. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, Scott Menville. I, I, I have to go back and revisit that, especially with your, uh, you know, the, the, through the queer lens, so to speak. Yeah. I mean, I don't... I don't think there's much of a queer reading to do. I just really liked that character and it made me question things because I was a guy. And of course, a cis guy can relate to a female character. Sure. But that's just like, I credit it at least in my mind as like the first little like push of the boulder down the hill. So yeah, that's another like one of several reasons the game is special to me. Totally. I mean, like the other thing is like some things are just sort of unexplainable, but are true. Mm -hmm. That can also happen. Like, especially like, there are so many things where the intention isn't to do that. And then it just sort of does end up that way. I mean, you look at the people who are fans of 80 slashers and there's so many like unintended trans narratives that people take away from those things and they're valid readings. Yeah. Yeah. Look, uh, you also mentioned Metroid Prime. I know you said like possibly your favorite game ever. I, even though we did talk about it in a previous episode, I still want to give you a chance to like at least mention some things you love about it. Oh, sure. Like I said, I have a little bit of a problem with open world stuff because just too many options and it takes long to get through but i think metroid games always took a good balance between there's always something to do and stuff to explore and get that good feeling without being too expansive if that makes sense yeah metroid prime hit that balance really well especially playing the remaster on switch but also the wii remaster both for like very smooth experiences gamecube control is kind of clunky but that's <laughs> i still enjoyed it there uh but what i really love most about the game is like this the way it does story through the scanning system where you can just like blow through it, blowing past monsters, collecting upgrades, whatever, not care. But almost everything in that game you can scan, you can read about. There is so many logs. It probably isn't the first game to do logs like that, but it's the first one I remember, and it really blew my mind. Like, oh, you can look up research like everything. And I feel like it's a lot more common these days, like you're from software games and things like that, having similar things. Mm -hmm. But like there is like a whole page of information about each enemy. And there's like all these little like bits of lore you can scan and find and read like the logs of the ancient Chozo here that and how, what they went through, the logs of the space pirates, what they went through a week ago. <laughs> and just each environment has so much history to it, too, that it just really gets that like sense of awe and wonder, even though it's like a space game, because it's sort of you're going through this dead civilization is a bit of an Indiana Jones element, too, that I love, like exploring this like forbidden temple and what's lost or trapped in there so yeah it's like the best of both like science fiction aesthetics like cool armor and blowing things with missiles and things like that with fantasy and adventure serial aesthetics it's just pretty much the total package i think it's wonderful yeah i and my favorite example i think this is from metro Prime two or three probably two my favorite example of the log system is all of the space pirate logs forming a narrative where it's like, ah, we are at this plate. Like, you're in log. It's like, aha, we have landed on this planet. And we are plundering it for the good stuff here. 
another log later on in the game is like, oh no, Samus is here. And <laughs> later in the game, you read a log and it's like, oh god, she's killing us. Like, it's after you fought in some of their bosses. Like, oh god, we gotta get out of here. It's like that kind of storytelling where it's like, you have the agency to find it yourself. When you do find it, you're rewarded with something fun or interesting. Is like no, very, yeah. it appeals to me. Yeah, that's uh, that's in Metroid Prime One. Uh, oh, is it the first one? Yeah, I haven't played two or three yet. Uh, but it's definitely in one because those logs are there, and it's like you guys can't take vacation time until we deal with this Samus problem. And then it's like, oh god, oh god, Samus has killed so many people. All right, scientists get a gun, and then there's like stuff where it's like we're trying to figure out the morph ball technology, and people just keep destroying. Yes, <laughs> yeah. oh, that's so that one's so good. Like I said, the agency of being able to find the story for yourself is so satisfying in those games. Both like direct with the logs, but also like inferring from like the environments you're exploring. It's it's so wonderful. It's great. It's like a double layer of something where it's like the initial layer is so satisfying itself, but like there's just another thing underneath it mm-hmm. that really makes it so rich and rewarding and is totally there for you and you can engage with it as much as you feel comfortable engaging with it. Yeah. And then when you just go back and replay these games, it's totally skippable. Mm-hmm. But yeah, no, thank you for telling me about these games that mean so much to you. I definitely have like a, a two playlist uh, after after this episode to uh, to refer to. It's time to talk about the main event, a game that is so immediately iconic that even people who haven't played it just feel familiar with it. And it is Phoenix Wright Ace Attorney. Phoenix Wright, Ace Attorney, is a visual novel adventure game from Capcom, who developed and published the game. Capcom's a Japan-based video game company known for other major franchises such as Mega Man, Monster Hunter, Resident Evil, Street Fighter, and Devil May Cry. This is the second Capcom game I've covered on the show. The first was Resident Evil 4 with Eric from Soundtracker. Phoenix Wright Ace Attorney was released internationally as a Nintendo DS game, but it was originally developed and released in Japan for the Game Boy Advance in 2001. It was developed by a team of seven people over the course of just 10 months. Shu Takumi is the creator, planner, director, and writer for Phoenix Wright Ace Attorney. He previously worked on a Dino Crisis series at Capcom and Shinji Mikami who was sort of the director of the first Resident Evil game and also the director of Resident Evil 4, sort of the brainchild of that, was a producer at Capcom and was so impressed with the work that Shu Takumi did previously working on Dino Crisis. He directed the second game after Mikami directed the first Dino Crisis game. He said, you have a few months, make a video game. What do you want to do? Here's your team, make a video game. And that game ended up being this game, Phoenix Wright, Ace Attorney, He was a huge fan of the mystery genre. He was inspired by uh, Western uh, mysteries, especially like Columbo and Perry Mason, which was a huge influence on the structure of this game, Perry Mason specifically. And he wanted to also create something that was entirely different from the traditional mystery genre because he wanted his property to feel new. But he also wanted it to be simple enough that like a newcomer to the medium of video games like his mother could approach this series. But uh. Rest of the staff working on this game, Atsushi Inaba served as the game producer. Noriyuki Otani was the programmer. Character designed by Kumiko Sukane, with art by Tatsuro Iwamoto. Masakazu Sugimori composed the incredible score for this game, with Naoto Tanaka providing additional music for the DS port because there was a fifth episode added to 
that. The first game's localization was handled by Bound Global and specifically writers Alexander O. Smith and editor Steve Anderson. Alexander also worked on the localization of Final Fantasies 8 through 12 and Vagrant Story, among other video games and manga over the last 25 years. This was an incredibly complicated and convoluted game to localize because there's so much dialogue in the game. It's a Mm text-based video game. And as a result, like they have to like adapt this and change this to be understandable and readable to Western audiences. So word plays had to be changed and names had to be changed and puns had to be adjusted and character names and locations even that they ended up like putting themselves in a corner over because the first case deals with the time zone clue as as a piece of evidence for something. Uh, Alexander just settled on America. And from then on, like the series was set in America, even though immediately the next games are like, this is very clearly Japan we're in. Do we want to do like a translation like corner now or should we wait for later? Because there's a lot of thoughts I have about that. We'll come back to the uh, localization stuff okay. uh, shortly because it is an incredible and insignificant portion of the game. But I just want to throw the names out for a second. But yeah, definitely put a pin in that. The story of Phoenix Wright, Ace Attorney, very quickly, is set in Los Angeles, Japan in the distant future of 2016. In this future, the backlog of court cases becomes so massive that trials are limited to three days and are solely determined by a judge, no jury. This results in tense, fast-paced trials where time is of the essence to prove a person's guilt or innocence. Phoenix is a rookie defense attorney working under his boss and mentor, Mia Fay, at the Fay & Co. law firm. The first case he has taken on as an attorney is defending his childhood friend, Larry Butts, who is on trial for the murder of his girlfriend, after successfully defending Butts in court, uh, Mia congratulates Phoenix and expresses that she sees a promising future for him. Unfortunately, Mia's own future is cut short after she is murdered in her office. Her younger sister, Maya Fay, a 17-year-old medium in training, is arrested after a note is found on the scene with her name on it. Phoenix takes on the case to prove Maya's innocence and faces off against Miles Edgeworth, a young and already successful prosecutor and his former friend. Shenanigans ensue. A lot of shenanigans. This is only the second case, and the game has five cases. As for the gameplay, Phoenix Wright is primarily a visual novel adventure game with some point-and-click elements. Gameplay is divided into two segments, investigations and trials. During investigations, the game incorporates point-and-click gameplay. Though you are a lawyer, you end up investigating crime scenes and talking to witnesses and characters connected to the trial in some way to gather clues and make sure that you can build a case to defend your client. During trials, you listen to testimonies and examine the evidence gathered during investigations to find contradictions from the witnesses brought in. While listening to witness testimonies, you can cross-examine them, which includes pressing them for further details in order to find contradictions or lies in order to get your client a not guilty verdict. Presenting wrong evidence results in penalties. After accumulating enough penalties, you lose the trial and have to restart from your last save point. So don't lose. Thrilling stuff. And of course, throughout the game, the cases escalate in complexity and length, further challenging you, the player. Phoenix Wright, Ace Attorney, was released in North America in 2005 on the Nintendo DS. Other games released in 2005 include Advance Wars, Dual Strike, Animal Crossing, Wild World, Castlevania, Dawn of Sorrow, Devil May Cry 3, Dante's Awakening, Killer7, Mario Kart DS, and 2005 also remains our most covered year on the show. Other games released in 2005 include Pokemon Emerald, Resident Evil 4, Star Wars Battlefront 2, and The Warriors. Before we move forward, Kev, have you played any of the games I just threw out? I mean, Mario Kart DS, of course. 
her so much. Resident Evil 4 I have played. It's like the one Resident Evil I sampled. Um, and that, that was a good game, but I don't think survival horror is really my genre. Sure. Um, and the other, like, I recognize all the names. Oh, I did play Castlevania Dawn of Sorrow. I like the CS Castlevanias a lot. But yeah, a lot of the names are games I re- recognize, but like are just outside the sort of things I usually played. But man, <laughs> it was a stacked year. You're right. Yeah, yeah. Um, there's a reason why this is considered like one of the big, big video game years. And, you know, a lot of people are around our age, you know. Yeah. So it's like a lot of these games just uh, coming out at the same time. Um, now, I just talked a lot and we already have a lot to say based on the stuff I threw out. And I promise we'll come back to all of it. But what ultimately made you decide on Phoenix Wright? Well. When I asked and you accepted that I'd be on the podcast, I think it was like a mutual, we both wanted this to happen sort of thing, from my perspective mm-hmm. at least. Um, oh, yeah. I threw out games that like I knew I could talk about without necessarily having to replay because, like I said, uh, I don't have much time these days. Sure. I think I threw off Oxenfree. I was like, if you need me to replay something, I can go through Oxenfree again pretty fast, and I would love to because uh, that's such a short but fun game. But like this and Roll Ends With You, I think were my other options. And... You're pretty open to any of them. And I was just like, you know what? I like this game is so important to me. It's such a bonding point for me and my family. And I think I just want you the chance to play it and for more people to learn about it. Because it is a pretty popular franchise at this point in time. I don't, it's had that sort of thing where it's been around for forever, but it's like slowly picked up cultural steam where it was, was, it was a niche thing God, 18 years ago when it came out. But now it's still like not mainstream, but definitely. It's considered one of the flagship Capcom franchises. And if you're in the know, you know what it is. If you are a gamer, you've at least heard of it. It's yeah. very outside sort of gaming. You maybe haven't. But if like gaming is like a hobby and not just something you do with your free time, you've probably heard of the Ace Attorney, which is like more status than it used to have. But I always want to spread the good word about it. I think it's <laughs> such a wonderful series and like it's doing very fun things. So I just thought I had a lot to say about it, and I want to always let people know about it. Yeah, you're very, you're very true that it is uh, not a big cultural phenomenon like a lot of video game franchises are, but it is definitely something that, like, if you do know, you know. Uh, if you if you're a casual, very casual gamer or somebody who doesn't know about gaming at all, you're probably not going to be familiar with it whatsoever. But if you are actively looking for video games and are actively plugged into like the video game industry beyond a, a surface level, you are at least aware of these games or at least like the aesthetics of Phoenix Wright Ace Attorney, because like it, it's one of those things where it's like the people who have played it love it and evangelize about it so much, it, understandably so. But Let's go back in time a little bit. You alluded to it at the beginning of this episode that you played it very early in its uh, initial release in America, but I want to hear more about this. Uh, what was your first encounter like with this game? I think it was just like seeing it get a favorable review in Nintendo Power and uh, buying it at the store. And like, yeah, I can't remember exactly where it was. I, mean, I would have been in high school or late middle school, probably high school at this point. Yeah, I just playing through it and having a great time, like, that sort of like, I think I was doing the thing where you like stay up late at night because just one more case, just one more plot twist mm-hmm. and really want to get to the end of the story. Yeah, I, I don't think there's a dramatic story for me discovering it. I think I just found it when it came out as just like another DS game to buy that was well reviewed and really loving it. Yeah, I mean, that, that's good to know. You mentioned your family being into it too. Yeah. Uh, how did that uh, happen? Oh, because I loved it and I kept passing the game around to everyone. I mean, both of my siblings are also like big into video games. I mean, this is my sister is ten years younger than me, so she played it 
much later. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I, I passed my brother and he loved it. And then I definitely, like I said, I played those King's Quest Monkey Island adventure games with my mom. And she also is a huge Agatha Christie fan. Mm. And I think this almost is like in that same spirit. Like I recently read my first Agatha Christie book that wasn't read to me. So like I I remember it being read to either by her or by audiobook. I can't quite remember. But um, a few of those Poirot novels. And then I read recently the first one Halloween party, which is the very loose basis for the new Kenneth Branagh Perot movie, because I figured I'm not like like Death in the Niles when I didn't either was read to me, I didn't remember or I was not read to me, mm-hmm. and I was very bummed seeing that movie. And it's like oh, now I know what the story is in a bad way. <laughs> I want <laughs> a long story short. So I read the book before watching this upcoming movie because I'll just watch it anyways. Why not? And I don't know. It struck me reading that it's like yeah, this is like this is where all murder mystery comes from is how she's writing and her skill with like characters and twists and details and things like that. And I did feel a bit of affinity for these games. So I retroactively, it was smart of me to recommend this game to Agatha Christie mom, loving mom, because (laughs) yeah, it's just various similarly great characters, great plot twists, a really fun mystery with really satisfying twists and resolutions. And it was just really nice. Cause like my mom, like she had a DS, but like she can't play like, fast-paced, very dexterous games, just not for any physical reason, just because her brain doesn't work that way. Right. And it, it, it takes, like, patience and, like, years of practice to be good at video games like that, <laughs> you know? Sure. I could only play Celeste because I have 20 years of, like, holding a, con- a controller in my hand. But she <laughs> loves, like, the DS really got her into, like, the Phoenix Wrights, the press latent, the hotel desks of the world, sort of scratching that adventure game itch she scratched on the PC way back when. Yeah, I think she has her own Switch now. We'll still occasionally pick it up for these kinds of, like, the similar genre we're talking about. Yeah. No, I mean, that's that's very lovely to hear. I love to hear uh, stories about people who yeah don't have that lifelong experience and can't do these dexterous things, like engaging with the medium in a way that it, it is accommodating of them. And especially yeah. since, like, Takumi designed this game with, like, his mom in mind. Like, I, it's just... <laughs> yeah, I was going to bring that up. Uh, yeah, that, that, that I didn't know that before, but that's very, like, heartwarming and, like, a great, like, relatable point. I mean, before we move off the topic of my mom, I also just one more fact is, I mean, I don't know if you remember, but there's the police dog named Missile in this game at the very end. And also, or I think not very end, but in the fourth case. And uh, Ghost Trick also has a dog named Missile, both named after Shu Takumi's dog at the time. And my mom names her dog Missile. And that Missile is still alive at my parents' house. It's a Labradoodle. And everyone always remarks that has such a unique name. But I know it's from the Ace Attorney games and Ghost Trick. That's lovely. I mean, like, it's one of those like again people who know know and then people who mm. don't know like love it uh, i have a black cat named naja so people mm. who love what we do in the shadows know what i'm talking oh, yeah. about but people who don't are just like that's a very interesting name and i'm like thanks i'm <laughs> not going to tell you where it's from because then you won't think it's as funny <laughs> or interesting yeah I, I have a friend with a black cat named nandor so that is a very fun coincidence i love it love it so much i caught up on the show last night too so it's all fresh on my mind I am working through season four. I'm almost done with that. I, I watched season one a long time ago. And finally, years later, like, oh, I should watch the rest of the show. And it's so good. Yeah, no, I, I just like it, it seems like exactly your kind of shit. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Uh, so before we get into the, the talk about this game in greater detail, uh, I always set aside some time every episode to talk about video game preservation. And you talked about this earlier with this game, how interesting the history of accessibility is with this game. Uh, so we are going to talk about that a little bit in this segment called No Country World Games. 
So for those of you interested in checking out this series, let's go over the way that this game has been available over the years and find out where it is now. The subject of video game preservation means a great deal to me. I believe that video games are an art form and they create experiences that leave impacts on the people who play them. Like you talked about this game and it's not just you who played it, but your entire family and you have a dog at your house named Missile now. Clearly mm -hmm. these experiences mean a lot to people and it shouldn't be locked into one console that's only culturally relevant for five to seven years. Of course, as much as these experiences mean to us, publishers don't feel the same way and they have historically struggled with keeping their older games available on modern hardware. As time goes on, games that were once easily acquirable or readily available to play become more and more difficult to acquire. But the interesting thing with Phoenix Wright Ace Attorney is how, how limited its run was initially and how like its popularity is a testament to how beloved these games are by the people who play them. So we're going to rate this game's availability on a scale of A to ARG and ARG is my expression of frustration and how hard it is to acquire a game. It is not me covertly advocating for piracy, which is illegal. I don't want Miles Edgeworth to prosecute <laughs> me or you. <laughs> Objection! But yeah, as stated earlier, uh, very quickly, Phoenix Wright was originally released for the Game Boy Advance in Japan in October of 2001. This is a game that was originally designed for Game Boy Advance hardware, but when it was released internationally, it was released on a Nintendo DS. It was released on the DS in Japan in September of 2005 and with an English language option available and a fifth episode added that took advantage of the DS's touchscreen and its more powerful hardware. This was the version that was released to an international audience. Uh, it came out in North America in October of 2005 and in Europe in March of 2006. But it wasn't a game that uh, was, you know, it wasn't like with like a marketing push or the kind of thing that you'd get from a Mario game. It was the kind of thing where it's like, We'll put 100,000 of these out at most, and the people who get them will get them. But these things were very hard to acquire at the time because they were bought up very quickly because they were popularly reviewed and there wasn't really quite anything like it. Yeah, I just I didn't realize. I must have gotten it first run, I think. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I was one of the lucky 100,000, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, I, I still have, I mean, they're probably back at my parents' house, but like those first three DS games, well, the first six because they got the one, the fourth one for the DS and the fifth and sixth for the 3DS. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting how much has become available over the years, whereas before, very locked to the DS consoles. And, I mean, before that, locked to Japan and the Game Boy Advance. Yeah. And as the series has slowly picked up steam as more people discover it, I think that's like a sort of push and pull where it's like people spread it word of mouth, it gets more people buy it, and then Capcom sort of widens it a bit. Mm -hmm. So, like, that Ace Attorney trilogy, when it came out for, like, all consoles, like, a, while, a few years ago now, I think, mm -hmm. several years ago, maybe, that was, like, a huge step, like, whoa, you don't need a DS to play these games. And I think the trilogy came out around the same as sixth game, which is, like, also going to the iOS, which is, like, also huge. It's, like, wow, like, you can actually play these games without a specific expensive console that is great, because they're such accessible and fun games, and everyone should play them, in my opinion. Yeah. So I really like that that Ace Turn Trilogy, every time there's a new console, it will get ported there. They will always make sure it's available. And now they're getting the other three extant mainline games on there. They got an international release for the prequel spinoff set in Victorian England, Great Ace Attorney. <laughs> like there was like a lull, a long time for them to realize there was such a market for these games. But once they realized that Capcom really finally capitalized on that. So yeah, I mean, I don't know if you want me to give the grade sincerely, but it's like... If not an A, like an A minus or B plus, I think the only thing really in the way is that you have to pay like 
think it's like $25 for the trilogy or something like that at this point. I don't think it's full priced anymore, but it's still fairly expensive. But you're paying for three games, but also you're paying for three games. If you wanted to play this by yourself, it's a little mm. tricky. And also if you want that gorgeous original pixel art, good luck. The new, the trilogy remaster has like cleaned up line drawings, which are fine. They're not ugly, but I love the original pixel art so much. Yeah, I'm going to come back to that point in a second here, but I want to sort of like, because you, you did a very thorough job. Like you did most of the work that I put into this uh, for <laughs> me, which was great. I appreciate it. But like to give a more like specific like history of it, like the limited run, this was at a time where you couldn't just freely download full video games, especially onto a handheld because of storage capacity on these things. And also the, no, the technology wasn't just fully there yet. It was locked to the DS for some time. A PC port of the GBA version of the game was developed by Daletto and released episodically starting in March of 2008. A Wii port based on a DS version was released on the Wii uh, on the Wii Shop uh, in Japan in December of 2009, and then internationally in January of 2010. A fifth episode, that fifth episode that was on the DS version, was included as DLC later that year. So you had the DS version, and then. Oh, you can download it on your Wii. How about that? that that's, a, that's an option. An iOS version, including the fifth episode, was released in Japan in December of 2009, internationally in May of 2010. And then the HD version, which you talked about towards the end, the HD version of the game, as well as its direct sequels, Justice for All and Trials and Tribulations, were released in a collection called Phoenix Wright Ace Attorney Trilogy HD, initially on the iOS and Android devices in 2012 in Japan, 2013 internationally. Subsequent releases of this trilogy collection were simply called Phoenix Wright Ace Attorney Trilogy, released on a 3DS in 2014, digital only. So like now you see like, look, even if you can't get this off the store shelves, you can download it on your phone. You can get it on your 3DS as like a digital item, but that's still like mainly handheld devices. Then in 2019, you get this version on the Switch, the PS4, the Xbox One and PC. This version has also replaced what is that what was originally called the HD version listed on iOS and Android as of 2022. So it's like the same version across all of this, the, the Switch, PS4, Xbox, PC, iOS, regardless of the device you're playing it on, you're getting the same experience that other people are getting on this console. And that's that's tremendous. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like it doesn't have the original pixel textures and it has like a cleaned up art style that is it. it it looks good sometimes and in other times it's like why is this the color against this backdrop with this character and they 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 look a little too rounded in a weird way it's hard to describe but it, there there are like moments where like you see like oh this would have looked beautiful as pixel art but now that it's like a, a drawing it's it, it's 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 weirder but yeah the trilogy includes uh, the remastered updated graphics and this is the version i played on switch in preparation for this episode you're right i think if this isn't an a it's a, like a, an a minus my only caveat that would keep me from giving it a full A is the only physical release of this collection is in Japan. And there isn't really an option for the original pixel art. So from like a, a, a truest preservationist angle, if I really had to give it the merits, it's like I wish there was a pixel art option in some way, shape or form somewhere that mm -hmm. people could access and play because I think that is the, the traditionalist understanding of like what this series looks like. But ultimately, it's good that these games, with the translations that people are familiar with, and the text and the core experience has been preserved and is available to play in at least one way, shape, or form. So, tremendous work. If not an A, very close to an A. Yeah, I think it is my nitpicks about the pixel are notwithstanding. It's otherwise a really good translation. We could get into some of the issues with the localization, but honestly, end of the day, I'd feel bad if it 
wasn't there. <laughs> so, <laughs> like, if they cleaned up the translation in any way, I would feel like, um, yeah, it wouldn't feel right, honestly. So, yeah, it's I like that they've left it pretty much untouched besides cleaning up the art. And I wish they didn't clean up the art either, but otherwise, yeah, it's just so wonderful that they've made it so accessible. Yeah, it's kind of like a damned if you do, damned if you don't thing, because since the re- original resolution was a tiny screen in your hand, That's true. the pixel art wouldn't look as clean. And like we don't use CRTs anymore, so like that this, that, that would also just look weird uh, on an HD screen. So I get why they had to like, well, maybe we can just do like art art, but it doesn't seem like they had enough time to really mm. do it for some some characters and some models and some areas. So right. it's it's a little not perfect, <laughs> I guess. It's 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 not perfect, but at least it's available in some way, shape, or form. Capcom, for their credit, they're not perfect at it, but they do a lot more than many companies do in terms of like releasing collections at a relatively affordable price with a good volume of games. It's not perfect. I'm not going to say like, oh, they're, they're amazing at mm-hmm. it, but they're better than a lot, especially with their classic games. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I think also like it gets, like the it, it, art style of the series gets better when they get to the 3D models. I mean, I prefer the pixels on the little screen over anything, but the 3D models took some adjusting when it came out in like the fifth one in like 2013. But I think that will look much better in HD, at least, in terms of upscaling. Because those are some pretty slick 3D models. Because I love pixel art a lot. I think that the the peak of the the Pokemon series was when it was still like doing the pixels versus Mm -hmm. like switch to 3D, which I don't feel like has been ideal for it. But I understand like the pressure. But the problem is like the 3D doesn't look remotely what it should should look like at this scale versus like how the pixel art looked really, really good in like the fifth generations with black and white and everything. But that's a digression. But it's wonderful that people can play these games at all. Phoenix Wright Ace Attorney is a wonderful game that successfully launched a franchise for Capcom. There are now 11 games in the Ace Attorney series. Uh, the game and the series also inspired a series of stage musicals in Japan, an yeah. anime series, <laughs> manga, and a 2012 live-action adaptation directed by Takashi Mikei. Interesting. I need to watch that film. I mean, I probably can find a copy. I just haven't put the effort into finding a copy in heavy, um, non-prosecutable air quotes. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I also really want to see, I think it's, what's the name of it? Is it the, there's the all girls, uh, theater troupe that did the musical of this. And I yes. want, that is so good. And I wish I could remember the name, but yes. Yeah. There's that I'm fascinated by, and I wanted to look more into it, but like, I, you know, we have to record these eventually. Yeah. Uh, but as for the movie, it's not streaming anywhere, but I did see you could rent it in HD for just 99 cents, which Oh, yeah. So there's there's options for that, at least physical copies. I'm not 100 percent sure on the distribution of, but at least people can rent it in some capacity. So I'm definitely going to check that out over the next couple of weeks. Yeah, the DS, 3DS and Switch versions of the game hold an 81 out of 100 on review aggregation website Metacritic. And this game was a major contributing force to the popularization of visual novels in the West. But we're not here to reduce the legacy of Phoenix Wright Ace Attorney to its popularity or its review scores. We're here to talk about its impact on somebody who played it. So let's get into it, Kev. Hey, Jen. Hey, Jacqueline. What do you think the most significant YA book series like the 2000s to the 2010s is? Oh, definitely The Hunger Games. No, no, I mean like... Like, uh, Twilight, Twilight, that's the best No, one. no, I'm talking about the Percy Jackson series by Riordan. Uh, I've 
not heard of those. If I wanted to listen to a funny podcast about those, what would you suggest? Well, I would recommend Unwise Girls, which you and I host. This is a podcast where we reread, analyze, and frequently joke about the books of the Rick Riordan verse. And we see why people call these the best young adult magical series of the 2000s. And we always take time to declare which characters are canonically, factually, not cis-head, because Rick Riordan is not the boss of us. Listen to Unwise Girls every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Brought to you by the Moonshot Network. What do you like about Phoenix Wright, Ace Attorney? that you wish more video games would do? For me, it really comes down to character. I mean, this is very unhelpful advice if you're trying to make a video game, but make your <laughs> characters good. You know, just write better. Um, but <laughs> every character, whether they are a main character or they're in for just one scene, is very distinct. Even if they're annoying, there is something entertaining about them. There are just very few characters that don't stand out. They all have their fun little quirks and dynamics and you just really get attached to them, especially over the course of multiple games. You really, the ones that recur, you really like find a fondness for, I feel. And yeah, I just feel like a lot of games sort of miss that step where the idea of a good personality trait is I'm a dad sad about my son or I'm a husband sad about my dead wife. Um, so yeah, I think that there's just like a lot of fun and interesting character dynamics in this game. I love that Phoenix himself is such like an optimist even though he's also like such like he's both the Shamil and the Shnozzle. He's like <laughs> very much um, the world is put upon his shoulders and he doesn't deserve this. And he's constantly complaining about it. But at the end of the day, he has these strong morals and will fight for what he believes in. And that contrast is very fun. The fact that he is so put upon and depressed for most of these games means that when he like finally gets in the gear and gets very excited about like, cause he knows what to do and confident, like, that always hits so hard, and that is just wonderful dynamic. And then, of course, you have the nominal antagonist of this game, the sad boy Edgeworth, who goes through such a character arc and journey. He's basically, like, the second most popular character in this franchise, and he's just great as well. Like, the very cold, cool demeanor with all the cracks under the surface and the sad boy backstory. That, that is the one time I'm in favor of being a sad boy, is, like, is that he is such, like, a well-developed character from the jump. But they're all great. Um, I could go on and on about all like the other smaller characters that I love. But yeah, it's character first with these games. They're so well drawn. Yeah, it's, it's, it's such a good balancing act too. Because as the player, you have to feel the tension to solve these these murders. There's a pressure on you, and that pressure feels legitimate on you on an interactive level. You want to make sure that like you you solve these cases so you don't get the fail state, but also because you actually want to find your client not guilty. And your attachment to these characters is contingent on that. Even if you don't necessarily love the client, or even if the client isn't a richly detailed character, you want Phoenix to succeed. You want uh, Maya to, 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 you know, to, to succeed. It, it's great. And your rivalry with Edgeworth makes this whole thing compelling too, uh, in, in addition to like, you know, these, this character work that's happening, the stuff you're discovering about each other, but like the actual, their dialogues with one another. And mm -hmm. also like just the idea of like, even if I do find like Edgeworth to be like a sympathetic character, I still want to kick his ass on 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 the right. field here. Like, and that's that that's the, that's the true thing here. Like the, the the character work is what like really like is like the X factor to this game. But like the the foundation of that is the the inherent dynamic of you are an underdog and uh, like obviously like this game is based off of like um 
the structure of a Perry Mason episode, like the classic 50s, 60s series, where uh, the first half is like you getting to know the, the person accused of murder, them gathering the evidence for it. And then the second half is the court case where they're fighting the same uh, prosecutor every episode or damn near every episode. But the, the thing that like makes it so good is like, you know, Takumi based it off like his like cultural background, understanding the Japanese legal system. He did like research into the legal system to make sure that he was, even if it's going to be a heightened, not accurate version of it, and no one should take actual law advice from these characters in Japan. If you are in a time when he was developing these games, the prosecutors won their cases literally 99.8% of the time, at least as of 2001. It sounds terrible and it isn't great, but it's because in Japan, like they only take on like 8% of the cases given to them. And it's like the ones that they know that they're going to win. But as a result, being a defense attorney is like one of the most stressful jobs in Japan because they never, ever, if it gets to that point, succeed. It's, it's, it's such an uphill battle. And that's like why these things are called turnabouts. Like you are literally the underdog. You have to scrape and like take, you're never like, oh, I have four pieces of decisive evidence. No, you have maybe one. You don't even know what it is when you go into the trial. You have to actually find these contradictions yourself and build your case basically on the fly. And it, and it works and you feel brilliant for it. And that, that's great. Like, yes, yeah, this, is, this is how you feel connected to Phoenix as a character centrally. Yeah. I don't think I'm much of a spoiler to say you win the cases and you, and also for future games, you win the cases. And that, what's really remarkable, the franchise as a whole is how they keep building the underdog tension, even though you kind of have to win to keep the game going. Mm-hmm. So it really is just kind of remarkable how they, they're good at stacking the deck against you while giving you that little worm to like squeeze your way out of it. It is impressive. Like every case, there are multiple times it feels impossible. How do I get out of here? And you just have to find just the one little crack in the armor. And then thing, you learn more information. Things start spooling out again. And so you get to the next impossible situation. Mm-hmm. And the way these games are so good at creating those impossible feeling situations and then letting you sort of naturally find that crack through like the question, the testimony or finding the evidence is like very compelling like it's it works every time and it's if you play every game in this series there's you've done it so many times and it still always works yeah no it's great it's a phenomenal feeling when like uh you know exactly what it is you need to pick on like the right dialogue prompt and it's just like oh yeah fuck yeah no it, it it's great stuff i didn't know how engaging this would be as a mostly a dialogue based game like it really is inclusive of the player and its decisions in a way that I did not expect it to be when it was like presented. It's it's broadly understood to be a visual novel game. And again, the distinctions, I don't want to hear about the distinctions, guys. I understand. I understand. But um, <laughs> it works so well and like how it's able to like weave the story in with your responsibility as the player to produce these results. Yeah, it's such a stroke of genius to lead you to the correct answers and let you deliver them because you feel so smart. <laughs> <laughs> like even if like the game is like doing a like not even really hand holding, but in subtle ways it kind of guides you to the right direction with a lot of the logical leaps, but then they leave that last step missing that you then get to fill in by pressing the right piece of inventory at the right time. And but they don't make it easy either. Like you do have to sort of think these things through and figure out the contradiction and the missing piece of information for yourself. And mm-hmm. it's just when you do, you feel so good and you feel so right. It's like training you to be a Poirot or a Columbo and <laughs> it makes you feel very satisfying. Like I am the one who's the smart person as narrative who is figuring things out. It's a rush that, like I said, never gets old. 
Yeah. Like the first couple of cases, the first case and the second case, I don't think I got a single penalty on. But like mm-hmm. I still but I still felt like that strong thing. Like I did still it does still effectively in a narrative make you feel like an underdog because even when you do click the right prompts, there's always like Edgeworth's like, Well, you fell right into my trap, Phoenix. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that kind of stuff. Like it still like makes it. And I understand like and they play it just enough time so it doesn't feel like bullshit it happening because right. it's like I basically want no. It's still so engaging and the the twists and turns are genuinely like, what the fuck? So it doesn't feel like completely unfair that they throw that at you it's good yeah i think early on they make you feel like an underdog because they say that the prosecution comes forward as evidence Mm -hmm. but i think that only comes up really early on i don't know how often that is through its first game but it's a smart card to play about making it feel good at first but they wisely back off because they did that every trial it would be like oh god they just made up evidence again this is it would feel like a cheap sort of way to pull it out Mm -hmm. so what i like maybe this is more applicable to future games but i like how the prosecution keeps finding new ways to sort of mess with you and like make things seem more impossible so it always feels like new ways you're stuck in little narrative corners that you get to work your way out of right and that's that's a great point because like again like if they were like actively cheating it'd be one thing but like Mm. and we can fully call this like the spoiler area moving forward because if you're this far along in the episode it's it's all story this game's all story the thing is, like, even as like the prosecutors are known, the prosecution office is known for being such a way. Edgeworth himself believes in what he's like mm-hmm. up to a point, and it like that this comes to a head in like the the third case in like a, in a, in a hilarious way. But he's honorable, and he's like doing this because he believes criminals should be in jail. Like he's has this complicated backstory, and it, we'll talk about that as we get along here. But. It's good because, like, even though like they are fighting from the winning position, which is accurate in like the justice system of Japan at the time, where basically the prosecutors have all these resources, and Phoenix, being a defense attorney who is an employee of one in his law office, he doesn't have these resources available to him. He has to like scrape by and get anything. Accidentally trick Gumshoe into giving him some important evidence uh, at the crime scene, mm-hmm. and then hope that he can find something in the courtroom. Like I think every single time, like it comes the the trial part of the section, he's like yeah man it's gonna be fine and then like he does like the thinking like oh my fucking god what is going to happen in this right yeah it, it's it's a format that always works where phoenix himself doesn't even know where it's going and unless the player is like a super genius or has played it before you don't know where it's going because it's like well how can this like there's just so many logical leaps involved into proving the innocence that you're just kind of vibing off of what the next step is Mm-hmm. And that works so well from like a narrative perspective too. Like Phoenix is just like this very lucky but also intuitive scrapper attorney who doesn't know how he's going to solve it when he walks in the courtroom, but knows how to get to, can keep finding the one little chink in the armor, like I said, to sort of get to the next step, get to the next contradiction, which will reveal the next one, which will reveal the next one. And hopefully, as it usually does, leads to um, the real truth behind it all. It's just such like a great way for things to flow because you're always feeling like you're backed in a corner, but you're always have a way out. Right. Um, and then that dynamic, because like how Miles is like not Miles, uh, how Phoenix is always from the losing position and still manages to find justice for a person who was wrongly <laughs> accused of murder and how that bounces off of Miles, who's like whole convictions like criminals need to go to jail. This person's a criminal. I can prove it. But his thing is like he is basically a tool for the corruption of the the established power here, whether he chooses to acknowledge that or not. The forged evidence isn't necessarily his doing, but it is provided for him by the corrupt prosecution office. 
which mm. again also is revealed like why the prosecution office is so corrupt in the fifth bonus episode which is like holy shit mm. but like he's blinded by conviction where as phoenix is driven by a determination to actually like deliver justice and his personal connection to almost all of the cases in this game makes that a believable aspect of his character like maya being the the sister of his mentor makes that work and then mm -hmm. when he eventually has to defend edgeworth in the fourth case in the game it's again driven by his ambition to protect somebody that he cares about for personal reasons it, it, it's great it's a great personal way to create that like underdog rookie story of like a guy's first time as a as a as a defense attorney yeah and back to character you briefly mentioned maya and i think it's a good way to segue into talking about how these characters interact mm -hmm. like they all have such fun dynamics with each other that are really built into the game and sort of build as the game goes on i love phoenix and maya's relationship it's one as characters sort of evolve and sort of reach different roles throughout these games uh but the one lawyer and the one partner will always be there because it's it's a it's great exposition to have some of the bounce ideas off of mm -hmm. but b this dynamic is so fun where it's like like i said phoenix he's ultimately like confident at the end of when rubber hits the road but is kind of a bit of a depressive and mm -hmm. pessimistic person at the same time um he has belief like he's optimist and that he has belief that justice can be done but he's pessimist about how he'll get there and Maya is just like a pure 100% optimist who is just like always sunny and happy and always needling him and teasing him. And I think that contrasts so well to personalities. I think just like going through and like clicking on random stuff when you're investigating, like 90% of the time it won't be the next clue, but it'll be some funny dialogue between them that mm -hmm. usually is just very good. Yeah, I wish I could remember specific ones from this game, but like I'll just say now I did not replay this game because <laughs> every time I felt tempted to, it's like, well, I do know the story that like a lot of the overarching of the story and what I love about the game, as it has been clear to the listener, I just can recall instantly because it's left such an impact on me over all these years. But it does mean that I can't pull a specific exchange between them that I really loved. But like it's still left an impact on me, the dynamic in general of how much they care for each other and respect each other and still have fun like needling each other throughout these games right and like that compulsion that you're talking about where it's like you want to get the dialogue even if you don't think it'll necessarily lead to the clue it is also like an interesting way to train the player to press every button to to find right. information right so uh like yeah you, you need to like investigate this because it could be a clue or it could just be like a way that maya is really fucking weird around uh phoenix and then they they, they riff off of each other or like one yeah. of them like makes fun of the other person so yeah like even if you don't get something productive you still find something entertaining because this is a story video game if the idea isn't to read the least amount of words possible like right. this is how you're supposed to play the game but it also serves you when outside of the investigations when you have to like actually like cross-examine the witnesses because no matter how you play this game, you have, even if you are confident, like where you go to find the contradiction, it is still rewarding to press on every single line of dialogue that's presented to you in a testimony mm -hmm. because number one, like you're going to, like you need to find like every angle from which this thing is spotty in terms of a testimony, but also because like, even if you don't, like you're still going to get entertaining dialogue out of the conversation. Oh yeah. And I think the entertaining dialogue also extends to the really good supporting cast. Mm -hmm. Like Gumshoe, ACAB except Dick Gumshoe. He is such like a lovable guy. Like you said, there's that dynamic where Phoenix keeps tricking to get evidence out of him and it always works. He's just a wonderful character. 
he has such like, a rich relationship not only with Phoenix, but with Edgeworth as well. Mm-hmm. And the, the running gag about Edgeworth docking his pay for every time he screws up is just always hits. It's always so funny. Yeah, if there's a if there's an argument for ACAB except Gumshoe, it's because like he's such a useful idiot. He's probably gotten more people out of prison than in just because he doesn't. Mm-hmm. He's so willing to give you information with like the drop of a hat. Right. Yeah, he's like, well, prosecution didn't want me to say this, but I don't know what that means. <laughs> yeah, he's just very affable and lovable. He's like one of the few characters who's like shows up a lot across these games, and every time it's a delight. I love him so much. Yeah, uh, like the fifth episode's whole thing is like exposing the corruption within the police department that Gumshoe works in and uh, has it out for the prosecutor's office and has corrupted the prosecutor's office. And that's so many, so many different things going into that. But like, uh, I'm not saying this game is radical in its presentation of the police. Obviously, it's all fiction and it's not, you know, it's service isn't to like paint an accurate portrayal of the world, but to tell a compelling story with with familiar pieces that take little explanation for us to get. So like, yeah, police detective defense attorney prosecution like you, you understand the basic framework of these things but mm-hmm. it does like go into police corruption and like <laughs> the way that gumshoe isn't an accessory to it at all because he is like a guy who just is stupid but genuinely wants to serve the community however that means it, it, it's so funny but it's also fascinating because everybody is abusing um gumshoe in some way yeah it's, it's a really great dynamic and you're right, you can't really do like a modern radical reading on it. But there is enough acknowledgement of like corruption in I guess just like just tales all the time, a great classic theme of like corruption in authority. Mm-hmm. And I think this game is like enough of a distrust of authority that it doesn't feel like it's really objectionable either, the way some media plays nowadays. Sure. So yeah, I think it hits a good balance there, unintentionally, of course, but still. As good morals at the core of it i guess i'm what i'm trying to say which is always very nice yeah it's archetypal like again like you're not going to like extract meaningful politics out of it that you can extrapolate into the real world but it gestures at things it's not trying to say like you know the police are unquestionable and prosecutors are unquestionable it is very humanist and it's like no matter what a system is it is still going to be run by people and people are fallible it's interesting that like takumi's takeaway from him actually observing real world court cases in contemporary Japan was the system is pretty unfairly stacked against the defense, huh? That's a very compelling angle and a really heroic position to be in to defend somebody who has everything stacked against them and like literally rising from the ashes. Oh yeah, absolutely. And going off of that, like, you know, the rising from the ashes thing, obviously we talked about gestured at this earlier, the, uh, the localization for this game and how crucial it is to our Western understanding of what this series is, because it makes so many non-literal changes, but in a way that is still in service of the overall story. Like, his name doesn't literally translate to Phoenix Wright in Japan. Like, that is, that is a choice to convey character in a new way. So, like, all the rise from the ashes stuff, that is, like, creation, but it is still thematically uh, significant and important and in service of the story that it is. So like you said that you had a lot to say about the, uh, the localization stuff. Do you want to go into that now? Yeah, I think the one issue is the America thing. It just doesn't make any sense. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but beyond that, I do think it is like, I don't know. It's just fun. It reminds me a lot of like how Digimon was translated in America, where it's not hundred percent faithful, but the writers did a good job of like, trying to translate sort of 
the humor and put sort of like American conceptions of these kinds of characters on overlaying it. So like kids would like it. And I, the audience base turns a little older, but like, like I said, there's a lot of humor in these games that wouldn't translate. So I think the injection of humor that does, I think really helps. Yeah. I mean, some of it is a little ridiculous. I can't remember how many pop culture references are in this one, but there's a lot in the second and especially third games. Mm -hmm. And then I think they backed off a little bit following that. There's a This is Sparta reference in the third game that I hope they kept in for re-releases because that is... I like it because it like puts it right in the 2007. And you know what? Why not just like embrace the era when something was written? I don't think they make any changes to the localization because of the Steel Samurai case, there is the director or writer mm -hmm. character who is a creep uh, and he speaks in leet speak but the leet speak yeah. is from 2005's english localization he's saying like te and like yeah. owned and owned and you know those those words that have, are no longer common parlance in our uh in the 2019 re-release moving forward where we would be saying things like based or whatever <laughs> it definitely <laughs> full circles world. yeah <laughs> it definitely full circles from of the moment to very cringy to this is now a time capsule. It's an artifact. And I appreciate that about it. I like things that are like that specific that they can sort of like put you in that time and place. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, it's it's a little ridiculous. But I mean, I don't know what that character did in the Japanese version, but probably something similar over the top linguistic quirk that they just found a way to sort of make a 2005 American version of it. Right. Like Gumshoe in Japan, like uses slurred speech at like the end mm. of his sentences. But in a, in the American version, he say he like ends the sentences like, hey, pal, you know, like something that like still conveys like he's not the most educated and aware person, mm -hmm. but in a way that would like be more readable to an American audience versus a Japanese one. Right. I also have to tip my hat to whoever's job it was to come up with all of the names. I think all the names are pun in, in Japan and in America, even if they're not the same puns, they always do a really good pun. Mm -hmm. um i love wendy Oldbag. i love that character too but the name especially is just such a ridiculous name lot of hearts another good one well phoenix wright is a pun i think the name is actually pretty different in japan i think it's like yeah it's ryu which is like dragon right yeah like it's not like it's just like they pick something that's like more readable because like the legend of the dragon in japan versus like a shorthand for phoenix would be just like a, a, a quicker thing to yeah yeah how we take it away but yeah, I think like like Miles Edgeworth isn't necessarily a pun, but it's like it gets the same mood as the original name as well. Like I think a lot of these names are good. They're also just great names. I really like how people are named in these games. Uh, mm -hmm. The pun names are very fun, and like the more serious main characters get like legit names that are well written. It's just uh, underappreciated art, I think, to all this. No, yeah, localization is an art. We talked about this in the Earthbound episode because that is another game with. A tremendous undertaking in terms of localization. Uh, I compared it to a Fooly Cooly on Adult Swim because that's oh, another yeah. tremendous, uh, you know, localization undertaking where you have to take these pop cultural references that are broadly understood in Japan and then replace them with pop cultural references that are or shorthand that we can broadly understand in America. Like, uh, like using the Fooly Cooly example, like they refer to uh, a discontinued drink in Japan and then they replace it with Crystal Pepsi in America. Like something that like. If you translated that literally, we wouldn't understand the reference. But by making it Americanized enough that we can understand it, like the joke lands. Mm -hmm. 
And they do that really effectively here where, I mean, you, you could say that they weren't too far in a few places regarding like, you know, changing ramen to burgers because in America, like those things, like it was like a couple of years out from like, you know, things taking off in terms of the, the common Americans understanding of Japanese culture and cuisine and things like that. But I think overall it works really well. And then the people who translated them in the subsequent games did a really good job doing a yes and going leaning into like the the, the mistakes, not mistakes, but like lack of uh, foresight, knowing where the games would go afterwards and to making it like a transformative thing rather than something to its detriment. Yeah, it's it's just enough transformation like we're talking about. Like they mm-hmm. don't go too far. I mean, I, the one place where it goes too far is the setting change, which as like continues to make less and less sense as the games go on. Mm-hmm. I mean, you said you played the set, you start a second game. I'm guessing you got into the case where it's in like a traditional Japanese village. Yes. And, yeah, they, and they lean into the sense. Maya stuff a lot in the second one. But uh, I read an interview uh, or an article written by the uh, translator on uh, Capcom's website. So from the second game onward, uh, Janet Shu is the person who handles the localization for the subsequent entries in the Phoenix Wright games. And rather than like moving away from the game being set in America, she decides like, okay, if it's going to be in America, let's make it Los Angeles specifically. And I'm just going like the way I'll rationalize it from my perspective is this is a version of California that didn't buy into the anti-Asian sentiments in the early 20th century, mm-hmm. uh, like the 1910s era anti-Asian bills passed during then, the internment camps during World War II and so on. So there would be a big Asian American community in uh, Los Angeles that we could use to justify why they don't have to fly overseas to do this village stuff in the second game. So I think an Asian person uh, doing the localization work on these games, making it uh, in such a way that she can create a justification for this world. I, even if it isn't written in text, I think that that is very interesting. And that's why I can't like write off how goofy it is uh, entirely. Yeah. And that is very cool. I think I love that mm-hmm. explanation. Like you said, it's not in the text, but it's, I mean, that it's a valid enough justification considering where they're starting from. So yeah, that is nice. Yeah. Regardless, like it is still goofy, but at least I can embrace it and not like put too right. many like suspensions of disbelief on it. Seeing how personal uh, somebody took uh, uh, a choice somebody made in the first game and leaning into it to find like some something to say through it. Right. Yeah, that is really nice. Yeah, it's good. Uh, but yeah, no, tremendous localization work, especially since mm. this is such a text heavy game. And oh, yeah. Like, we, we have to interact with the text of it at all time. And yeah, like, sure, like, it gives you, like, the goofy elite speak things, but mm. I'll, I'll take it. Like, there was a lot of hard work that goes into these localizations, and I appreciate that the hard work that went into it. There were two fan-translated games that came out. Um, one for the second Miles Edgeworth spinoff game, one for the first Greatest Attorney's prequel game that came out before it was released in America officially. And both of those took years i think there were different teams but the teams between announcing and releasing them took years and years to complete those <laughs> games and i think it just really gives you an appreciation for wow it's, it's really hard to localize these games and those fan translations are really good mm-hmm. I and mean, one of them is no longer necessary but for the criminals out in the audience i'm not <laughs> endorsing you going out and finding the i probably easily accessible files for that game and its fan translation the at investigations too but it's it's good. It's like really good. It, it even keeps some like dumb jokes in it, which is what you want. 
and they might more literally translate the names, which is unfortunate almost, but like there's a lot of like weird pop culture references hit in hidden little corners in it. That's like, you got it right. That's what we want to see. Right. Yeah. We talked about how good the localization is, the character work is, and like how empowering it is in an interactive level to uh, eke out these victories. What else do you love about uh, Ace Attorney? I mean, I think this is so obvious, but I think they're really well-written murder mysteries. <laughs> Every twist is very satisfying. Who did it is always very satisfying. Um, I rarely see it coming to each time. And I mean, well, sometimes it's obvious. I mean, the first game really tells you who it is. I think the third case also pretty heavily leans. The second third case really heavily lean into this is the bad guy. But yeah, then the that's fourth, where like the Columbo reference yeah. uh, the thing comes in, because I think most, if not all of the cases, because I, I think it's a really good twist, right? Because the first three cases tell you outright who the murderer is or it shows the murderer. Right. I forgot about that. But when you do the fourth case and it's Edgeworth, you see someone get shot and then you see Edgeworth like looking shocked after the gun fires. And it's mm-hmm. like, does that mean Edgeworth killed him? That's great. I think that's fucking great. Oh, yeah. I yeah. forgot. That's right. For the first three cases, you see who did it. And yeah, it's it's just a matter of Columbus style getting there. So I guess I'm more talking about the sequels do a better job of like throwing off the scent and having surprise mm-hmm. murderers. But those work really well. But specifically this game then, still the narrative logic of getting to who killed the person is yeah. always very satisfying. I mean, this is overlapping with a conversation about getting into corners and out of them. But the logical leaps you take are always far-fetched enough that you won't see them coming, mm-hmm. but logical enough that you can still take them and it feels satisfying when you do. It doesn't feel like this pulled out of nowhere. Right. Because like you may know who did it for those first three cases, which is like a good on-ramp into like helping you make these logical leaps or contradiction-finding things. Like It really trains you, so when you do have to do the Von Karma case you're equipped with like the knowledge of the game to handle like the most complex thing in the game. That's great. But like it's setting the stage for you and like you having to like this ergo this to reach the conclusion that you already kind of know it helps like having these connective tissue. Oh yeah. And just like in construction, each of these cases, there's so much thought put into this is where this character was at this specific time. And Mm -hmm. then they went here and then this had to happen to them. And after they were killed, this had to happen to them to stage the crime machine in this way to frame this person. Like, there's so much logistics at play in each case. And each time, like, Shutakumi and whatever the writers he may be using are just on the ball, like, mm-hmm. keeping track of it all. There must have been crazy, like, cork boards or whiteboards, like, tracking all of this. But it always makes sense. It always flows well. It always gives enough room for enough red herrings in the middle of each case. And you really have a good sense of, like, even though the story of how this person went from alive to dead and someone framed with a lot of weird stuff happening in between, mm-hmm. there's so many steps every time, but each time it still makes sense. Like there's, there's never a true break in reality. I don't feel. Yeah. Like tying the second and fourth cases, uh, yeah. Maya and uh, Edgeworth cases is to the DL five incident in the past it does a lot of narrative cleanup. So like they can really focus on the mystery and the actual act of like finding mm-hmm. your client innocent. And yeah, that this whole like, you know, most of these cases are connected to each other in some way vis-a-vis like Phoenix's relationship to the accused. That gives you the narrative buy-in and that gives you like the stakes and the passion for it, which lets uh, Takumi really spend a lot of time like figuring out the geography of these, of these um, setups and the, the parties at play. And Man, it, it does such a great job. Yeah. Like I said, the geography is always very well thought through. Mm-hmm. And I think with those 
both turn up goodbyes and rise from the ashes and this is a trip a lot of other later cases will use too is the past case that has to be unearthed and mm-hmm. is relevant again to something new i think is also just always very fascinating when they whenever they deploy it because it's just well a it's like another challenge like how do you prove something that happened years ago and it's that's its own like underdog challenge that's very fun but also that's like an extra layer of complexity is how things years in the past relate to the present and what could have changed and what could have shifted and that is just also just like very compelling stuff right because i think like uh you know making these things personal and like making it so connected to the past like and I'm not saying this is cheap. I think it's effective and I think it's great. Uh, I think probably one of the harder things in terms of like creating a mystery is like establishing motive. Mm-hmm. Why does this happen? How does it happen is like the, the, the probably the fun stuff. But like why does it happen is like the stuff you have to justify to create the how. And by tying it to like here's a previous case that happened and that's why this, this prosecutor is being accused. Here's why this cop is being framed for this. Here's why this is being, yeah. By like tying it to like, oh, well, because of this previous case. So that gives you like so much room to do character work. And it also gives you so much room to establish motive. It, 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 it's smart. It's very intelligent uh, writing. I mean, even in general, when there's not a previous case, these games are very good at establishing motive and having like fun mysteries around that motive. Like even if you know who did it, like you do for most of this first game, figuring out the motive tends to come late in it. It usually does throughout the whole series. And I think the motives are always usually very well justified. Again, like stuff you couldn't predict, but once you sort of stumble onto it, it feels so logical and satisfying. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, I agree. Another thing I love about this game, which we've talked about before vis-a-vis your mother, is how inviting this all is mm-hmm. and how accessible it all is. Because even as these stories are batshit and it is told through like an anime veneer where everything is heightened and exaggerated, it is it's welcoming like you you buy into the reality of the world but also it's very easy to appreciate that stuff because you do not have to worry about being able to keep up with the gameplay like you said like your your mom doesn't have the reflexes that a story to gamer would but she's able to fully appreciate the story as somebody who has played video games our entire lifetimes like we have are because like she's only has to be able to press a or in point at things right which is sort of like going to be me talking a lot about um, another issue that means a lot to me, which is accessibility in terms of the disabled. I don't talk about this issue very much on the show, but it is something that means a lot to me because I know people in my life who have physical disabilities and love video games, but they are limited in the number of video games they can play because of those motor disabilities, especially. The CDC reports that approximately one in four adults in the United States have some kind of disability. And I feel like people with disabilities are among the most overlooked in our society, in all societies. And it's a serious problem because there isn't a single human being in the world who is immune to the possibility of one day having a disability, whether temporarily or permanently. Even if you cannot see the altruistic angle of providing for the people with disabilities, think about like the personal angle of like, what would happen if I were to become disabled one day? What is there for me? We need to have infrastructure and support, et cetera, et cetera. And it is an issue that's fortunately in the video game community gotten a lot more visibility in the past few years because things in the past hardly had any kind of accommodation for people with disabilities and now do. But if you want to like learn more about disabilities in video games, and this is an issue you're familiar with, there's a lot of material out online you can look up. 
There is Game Maker's Toolkit is a great YouTuber who has a series of games about disability and like how we can do better and like examples within that are good and examples within that are bad. But all this is to say, I love that this game is as good as it is and can be played by those not just new to video games, but those who also are limited in the number of video games they can play. Uh, this is a game you can play with literally just one hand or even one finger and not have an experience different from somebody who has full locomotive ability. And that's that's wonderful. Yeah, I fully agree about all of that. And that's even though, as mentioned, I have the reflexes for more complicated gaming, that's I think it's just so wonderful. That, like it's you can truly interest to anyone. And it's like on iPhones as well. Mm-hmm. You probably don't even need to buy something to play this game. It is one of the most accessible, not just through availability, but just then. If you like I said, if you have a finger that can tap, you can play this. It's great. Yeah, it's it's wonderful. Like like I, I completely forgot about the uh, iOS Android port of the game where you don't even need to have buttons to press. You can mm. just like find something that can touch the screen and you'd be able to play the game. That's yeah, so many options, especially those of limited financial ones as well. Yeah, no, this is this is this is great. We've praised this game up and down, and there is so much to praise, and there's probably so much that we haven't even begun to like praise in detail. Like we haven't even gotten to like the complexities of like these these cases and like the specific twists and turns that they take but i wanted to take some time to address some issues with the game or mm-hmm. what you might perceive to be some issues with the game no game is perfect what is something that you wish this game uh, did better if you have any feedback for it the big one is i think it can be frustrating sometimes getting from the investigation parts to the trials the later games in the series get better at this by like highlighting what you need to click on and more guidance of this is where you might have missed something to find that moves the story along. But especially this first game, it's a lot of like you're given a series of rooms to look through for like inventory items, evidence, mm-hmm. call it what you will, people to talk to, but it's not always clear like what order to do them in and where the stuff in the room is. I just remember a lot of hours like clicking around a room like I guess there's something I missed here or is something I missed here or here and like being sort of lost direction wise like that. Mm-hmm. I mean, thankfully, ever since the game has come out, there's been great like spoiler free walkthroughs. Uh, I remember them being back on old game facts if that site still exists, but you can probably find spoiler free walkthroughs other places as well. But basically just like no story information, just the literal steps to do like go to location blank and click blank or present evidence blank at blank statement which is great if you're stuck Mm -hmm. but yeah you can get stuck in those investigation things pretty easily that's my big note is that sometimes the game is a little frustratingly opaque because it is that stepping stone between like the adventure games of yore which were like really opaque and really like challenged you to like think things through and do trial and error and sort of the more modern narrative adventure design where it is very much free-flowing and no wrong answers. Mm-hmm. This is kind of that in-between stage where it's like, yeah, it, it mostly like will guide you through the story and not expect you to remember to bring this one inventory item to this point in the game, otherwise you're stuck. But it also, you're still, like I said, doing that sort of clunky, almost moving from location to location, and you have to figure out what to do there in order to proceed with the great story. Yeah, I mean, like you, you raise a good point where like a lot of the game is the illusion of brilliance for you, where it's like, I'm so smart, where it's like the game laid out all the tracks for you to make the choices that you make. Like mm-hmm. there's one correct answer and you found the correct answer, but it's reading comprehension and, a, you know, your ability to like draw those conclusions and you chose the one prompted correct answer to solve the problem. You feel very smart, but that also comes with like, there's one solution to everything that you do. And since the 
investigation is a bit more involving than the simple act of like, here's the evidence I present over this this line of text. It's not hard to end up getting lost in. I, I think this came up especially during the uh, Steel Samurai case. Yes. Yeah, because that area, there's so many like areas you can go and visit. And the frustrating part is like the way that the lot and studio are set up. Like, you know, the geography of it very well, but you have to like, okay, well, I'm here. Now I have to go back to the entrance. And then from the entrance, I have to go here and then I have to go all the way to the far side here. And that's like several different points where you have to like press back, open up, move, go to the next area that you're permitted in and then open up, move again to go to the next area that you really mm. intended to go to. It's there's no option for you to like go all the way back to phoenix's office from like the the far end of a studio for example you know you get lost in like these big areas where there's so many things that you can interact with and find and you're like beating your head against the wall trying to find like where you're supposed to go Mm -hmm. and like the answer was like i wasn't supposed to be in the lot at all i was supposed to go to the police station and then run into gumshoe and then like i present the evidence i found there and then like it's like it's not evident because like there's no kind of like thought process that they express out loud that's like right uh, Maya's not like Nick. We should go to the police uh, office. We should go to like the the police station now and see what we can find there with the what, what we've seen or something like that. I think if there was just like a way for like uh, you know how like you begin every case in your office and you talk to Maya and like you're able to ask like Maya like what should we do and Maya always gives you a variation of like fuck if I know. Right. I do think like if you were able to use that in such a way where you return to your office after finding evidence. Uh, like you could ask Maya, like, what should we do? And she'd be like, well, you just found this. Why don't we do that? But I guess I don't I, I'm not sure. Maybe the game just doesn't want you to get that much help. So you still feel like you're solving these problems, but it does come at a detriment. I think that is a little bit generous. I think they were just very lazy in coding that helpful feature. <laughs> they did make the game in 10 months. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, lazy is probably not the right word, but you know what I mean? Like they didn't yeah. fully think it through about the getting lost and such. Like I said, future game in the series, I think like the 3DS games, which are five and six in the main line, and the two greatest attorney games, those are the ones where I think they do like start saying, if you leave this area, there's still something to find here. Or a character will be like, why don't you go to this location? And you can go to any location from any location. Like very simple quality of life stuff like that that really helps streamline the experience and make it more fun. You're right. Yeah. And I think that's something I have to like be a little bit more generous about making that complaint because I did like, you know, the game was developed in 10 months and like they haven't added many quality of life improvements to the subsequent ports. So you are still playing a fundamentally 2001 video game that was developed in just 10 months by his team of seven people. Mm -hmm. It's not going to have the cleanest things, but it is like a little frustrating in the moment. And like, you're not thinking like, calm down, man. Only seven people made this game. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Yeah. And I do think that third case in the first game and then that second case and second game in Maya's Village are like the worst defenders in too confusing of a layout and not knowing where to go next. Um, I'm going to get into my other complaint about this specific game, which is the third case is fairly weak. It's still good. I don't think there's any really bad cases across this entire series, but that's the one where it's more of a shrug. I think especially because you know who it is going into it, and even if you didn't, it's very obvious who the one killer is the one person who looks intimidating <laughs> and the characters just aren't quite a, like i love some of the side characters like i mean wendy Oldbag is such a funny antagonist minor antagonist for things to come up against and will powers is a really great defendant he's like a very nice guy but mm-hmm. none of the other characters like the leap guy i can't remember much about him besides the way he's talking i can't remember any other characters from that case it is kind of a void to me and i don't think it do as much with the movie studio setting as they could have 
whereas all the other cases have some very intriguing element to them. I think like that one's just like a very simple murder case without much going on under the hood, uh, story or character-wise. Yeah, like, I like the big parts of it, but I think like it's just like the investigation part specifically is so frustrating that it hampers how good the big moments are so it like it i mean by default it's going to be the weakest case because like i don't like the word filler i don't i think it's very necessary to have breathers so we can see like what a default version of i think that's a fundamental weakness of like the jessica jones and daredevil series on netflix right that they don't have like an episode where like jessica's just doing a normal investigation or daredevil's like helping a normal everyday client and said like he has to defend the punisher or something like that Mm -hmm. um I think like having like a breather case that's just like here is a normal day and like what he would do if like it wasn't everything coming back to Edgeworth and Maya in some way. I see the necessity in that. Mm -hmm. It's just like, again, like since the investigation portions are so big in terms of like the space that you have to do and all the things that you have to do to get to like the the trial part where all the really cool stuff happens in those cases, it can be uh, frustrating. I'm thinking specifically of like how great it is at the point where like Edgeworth just kind of gives up on prosecuting. Uh, the murderer and yeah. is like basically helping Phoenix like find who the real killer is because he's just too annoyed. Yeah, it's a great character moment for Edgeworth. That's right. Um, forgot the happens in the third case. That is really good. Mm-hmm. There's something else. Yeah, there's something else I love about that case too. I'm trying to think of it. Though. Oh, because I love the Hollywood setting. Because I love like oh, yeah. weirdo Hollywood mysteries mm-hmm. like uh, Mulholland Drive mm-hmm. and um, Under the Silver Lake. Even mm-hmm. so, it's like it's not really a setting or like anything like that. It is just like the structure of the investigative parts can be overly long. Yeah, I think in general, when this series sort of intersects pop culture with the mystery, like the fake pop culture that it invents for the mystery, it's always very fun. The Steel Samurai is such a, like a fun little invention of this game. Yeah, I agree. Again, it's too, it's too charming to get really frustrated at. Oh, yeah. Yeah. If I had to find like another like thing that frustrated me playing this game, which again is wonderful, love it, and I love the sound design and I love the sound effects and I love the music, but I don't love every sound effect in the game mm-hmm. as iconic as the hold it's and the objections and like the, the text sound effects are and everything like that, how effective those are. Sometimes I just pick a really fucking annoying sound effect that keeps playing very frequently and it drives mm. me up a goddamn wall. I'm thinking specifically in case five where there's a, a stupid cop who's like a rookie oh, yeah. and he has like a megaphone that he yells into like every third line and the, the 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 sound effect that his megaphone makes the feedback that comes off of it is so grating to the ear and it happens like every two seconds i had to like whenever he was on screen i had to turn the sound effects off and that was so frustrating because all the other sound effects in the game are really pleasing to hear mm-hmm. it, like there's just like a couple of handful of sound effects that happen like there's birds chirping and like the the fourth case with edgeworth that like just doesn't sound quite right and it like grates in my ear but that's just being really really specific on my on my criticisms at this point yeah in general the sound of this game is great i can't believe i've talked about it yet but it's like one of the all-time great video game soundtracks i think it's the pursuit theme is what it's called when you're like when phoenix like has a lead and he's going after it is just like really rousing fun music it's like such a understandably iconic piece of video game music 
Yeah, no, it's great. Um, my roommate Avery was uh, in the room when I was playing a lot of these games, and he like very specifically said, "I love the the loops in this game a lot. Like all the music's mm-hmm. really good." But he also like also complained about the the megaphone sound effects. Uh, oh yeah, looping too many times. Yeah, sometimes they can overdo it. Like even the sound effects that are like fine and simple, like the flinch sound or things like or like the ding. Like sometimes they can really overdo the sound effects for like a comedic point, and it can get annoying. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Like, uh, there's a couple other things too. Like sometimes, like um, when you're trying to trial and error presenting evidence to somebody uh, when you're doing the in- investigative portions mm-hmm. of the game, and like their uh, the, their response to being presented something that they don't find personally relevant to the case is like 30 lines of dialogue and four sound effects or something like that, and you're just like, yeah, b b b b b b b b b b b. All right, yeah, I get it, I get, it. I picked the wrong thing. Let me try again, and then it happens again. Like, fuck, okay. Yeah, sometimes you can really go overboard with that. Mm-hmm. But that's it. I don't have anything else to criticize you. No, no, yeah. Um, talking about presenting wrong evidence, though, uh, we haven't talked about one of my favorite characters across all these games, which is the judge, who is just a quick shout out to the judge because we've already gone so long. But I, it's such he's such a great like the voice of reason character because um, his job is basically to like it's an interesting position because he's kind of like the note like stops people from having fun. But he's such a fun character in and of himself. I don't know. I love the dynamic where he like has to be like an exposition machine like people have to explain to him what the mystery is like where all the elements are yeah and also he has to explain like rules of the game and like keep things in order and that could be such like a no fun character with a lot of dialogue but instead he's kind of an amiable doofus like a lot of the great characters in these series and it's such a fun dynamic to play around with and he becomes sort of a character on his own and it's just yeah he's great i love him yeah, no, I mean, like, it works because it's kind of like a, like, I'm not going to say, like, it's a perfect parallel to, like, Justice is Blind, where this guy is, like, kind of so impressionable. Mm-hmm. He's, he's so impressionable, he'll just sort of believe whatever the last thing he's told is, and, like, sometimes you have to really, like, baby talk him, like, it, the reason that this is important to the case, but he's hilarious, he's a great fucking yeah. character, and, like, taking something that could have been a stock generic character and turning him into a, another hilarious thing that Phoenix has to, like, be frustrated at is, is good writing. Mm-hmm. God, yeah. I mean, like, we could talk about these characters for hours and like the weird little like character affectations. I'm tempted to, but like, I think this like, game... I have to. Sorry, mm-hmm. I, just, I was saying I have to hold myself back from getting deep into like Larry Butts and Lot of Heart and everyone I love in this game. Besides, like the people who like recur throughout the cases, is there like a is there like a specific character that like really stands out to you that you love from this game? You you mean just like a one off character? It could be a one off character, or it could just be like a Larry Butts that like you know he comes yeah. up in like three different cases. So just besides the main character. Yeah. Yeah, I, I guess it's almost like I can't pick one. So I'll just say a general type. Like I've already shouted Wendell back a few times. I just quickly shout a lot of heart. I love the characters that are like very annoying to Phoenix. The more annoyed Phoenix is, the happier I am. Because it's always <laughs> a very funny dynamic. Yeah. And the more annoyed Edgeworth is too. When Edgeworth gets really annoyed by Witness, then you know they're awful. <laughs> and that is, that is always fun when he loses his cool at someone. I don't know if you're a comedy bang bang listener. I'm a, I'm an occasional one, yeah. Yeah, this is the comparison that just sort of struck me. Are both Phoenix and whatever prosecutor is prosecuting at the time can have that sort of Scott Ackerman role, where against a witness, sort of doing one of the improvisers doing a bit on that podcast, where eventually they hit a point where they're just like, "All right, enough out of you." It's always a dynamic that's very funny. Yeah. It feels like a game that's almost comedy first, despite how intense it is, because it mm. is like really good bit stuff. And it does like sense when like a bit is dying and when to move on from it. Right. It has like the rake gag ratio perfect, where a character will start pretty funny, 
wear on you after a little bit. Eventually, they do it their shtick so much it gets really funny, and then exit stage left, and it's like the perfect timing. Yeah, I do have an- another criticism that did just occur to me though, because I was like going down the list of like characters in my um, on my thing here. It does feel like the male characters in this game get to like have a lot more besides Maya. Maya does feel like mm-hmm. I'm not saying this to be like blase but like one of the dudes like they let Maya have free reign to be whatever she wants to be a lot of the female characters that like become witnesses in this case become pretty one-dimensional mm-hmm. especially like uh in one of the early cases i think it's a lot of heart in case two who's like you know i'm i'm just i'm just a girl i'm just a little girl look at my boob tee hee kind of thing oh and that's yeah. that's that's april may a lot of april heart the photographer from case a lot of heart is a photographer from case four i don't oh, care yeah. for april may i love a lot of heart a lot of heart uh who yeah the photographer the southern photographer <laughs> Right. Yeah. A lot of hearts. Great. But like, uh, yeah, April May, who's just like, you know, I wish there was like a single character in any of the Phoenix Wright games whose like whole thing is like his animation was like his bulge, like moving and yeah. like the judge going like, damn. <laughs> okay. I mean, not to say too much, but be careful what you ask for, because that character does exist and winds up straying into not full on homophobia, but 2003 in that area. Oh, man, I wish I didn't say that. Speaking of gay, though, mm-hmm. this is the gayest game I've ever played. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Like, this this series is a huge queer fandom for reasons that became very obvious once I became aware of the concept of queer fandom. Mm-hmm. I've, I've played the following games for this show alone. Metal Gear Solid 3, Fallout New Vegas, and Sonic Adventure 2. Mm-hmm. That when I say this is the gayest game I've ever played, like it, it, it there's some like pretty gay ass games I've played before this, but this <clears> is like I don't know what else you can describe Phoenix and Miles' dynamic with other than like catty gay, right? Yeah, the Ace community also really likes these games because Phoenix and Miles are just so like they I'm sorry, just the cannot Ace get... community. The Ace community, oh god, Ace attorney. <laughs> I wasn't even putting that together, but yes, mm. um, just because. I don't know. The the characters just don't get horny to almost comical degrees. Like, even though there's like in the second case is one with her boobs right in front of you. Mm -hmm. um, They just stay very mission focused. Both of them. They're they're just horny for justice. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) But yeah, in general, there was also just like Phoenix and Miles is like one of the great like Kirk Spock style. Like here are two men who like wind up forming such respect for each other that we have no choice but to like romantically pair them and good on you for doing that. Yeah, like, I mean, like, yeah, I mean, like, if you don't ship them, that's, like, your prerogative. As long as you don't ship them with any other person in the games, that's fine. Because, like, it, 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 they seem like they are, like, even if, like, you don't see it as romantic, they are definitely, like, linked in some sort of, like, destiny thing forever to be up right. each other's ass in either a metaphorical or physical way. Like, it's interesting because, like, you know, um, Maya's a 17-year-old girl and Phoenix is a 24-year-old guy. And, like, mm-hmm. There are like stories around that same time that would have easily have given into like the idea of this becoming a romantic pair, but they are very sibling in their like way that they talk to each other. It is very much like an older brother and a younger sibling in the ways they interact. It never even comes up as a possibility to them in my experience. I don't know how the later games go. Right. It, it never does. I'll just say that. Like Thank that's God. not a, it's a, a non spoiler, but yeah. Phoenix never like has any real romance going for him at, that I can remember. And I think that's almost to the character's credit because these aren't romantic stories. There, <laughs> I mean, you can write a romantic murder mystery, I suppose, but that's it, not what this game is like. I think I think to tell a romantic story, you have to put a lot of effort into it. If you have other things on your plate, better to just keep things simple like that. And so mm-hmm. I think it's very that is a very like modern thing. Pop culture, I think, has only really 
emphasize the men and women can just be good friends and really like, no, we're not dating. We're just friends. Like that sort of aspect of like character dynamics, I think is only really come out in the last like decade or so, like in a lot of American pop culture. But these are games from 2001. Like the original run was 2001 to three of these first three. It, it is an early example of just like, they could have dated, but they don't. They just have a friendship dynamic that's platonic. And I think right. that is like kind of notable and fun. And I think their dynamic is so good, stronger by the fact they are just like friends who goof around each other and needle each other. Like you said, Maya's kind of the only really um, interesting female character in this game. I Besides outside of Case 5, which I think has a couple other ones like Emma and Lana. But mm-hmm. uh, it's something they slowly creeps into the game is more female characters with more agency, which I do appreciate. You do play as other lawyers in later games for very complicated reasons that we it's not we do not have time to get into. <laughs> but you do wind up playing as a female character in some of the much later games, and she's really fun and a very interesting character. There's just a lot of other fun ones out there. Like very few of these female characters are just the love interest. They are almost always like fun and interesting and have a dynamic or a hook. I mean, even the very shallow female witnesses that you pointed out, they all at least, they're not just woman first. They are their bit first. Mm-hmm. I mean, I guess April May's bit is being a woman, but besides that, yeah. they're, they're, they're a comedy bit first and, a, and whatever else second. I'm so just imagining that, like April May like looking around the room real quick, like, what, what the fuck's my bit? What the fuck is my bit? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Wonderful, wonderful game series with a lot of great characters. Incredible bits. Mm-hmm. This is a game that's made an impact on a lot of players. What impact would you say this game made on you? I almost feel like we can breeze past this because I've done a lot of talking about it already. I love narrative adventure games now. I've played so many of them and I want to play more. And uh, it's just also more in- endured my love for murder mysteries and for character-based storytelling. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, like, yeah. yeah, it feels like you answered that. Because, like, my other question would have been, like, what impact on the media you've consumed it was or anything like that. And, like, obviously, like, you've talked about how this game has impacted you. You uh, mm. forged a bond with your family, sharing a, a video game you could all play easily. Um, you have a dog named Missile in your life. Mm-hmm. You love narrative adventure games. I feel like we can uh, move past this. But before I move away from it entirely, is there anything else you want to add about Phoenix Wright or your relationship with the games before we go forward? I mean, I think we've pretty much covered it. Like, yeah, I, I'll just say the final word then. This is such an important game to me. Like, just not that I was like, I mean, I was moved by the story, but not in like a like spirited away or like um, reading Lord of the Rings for the first time way. It's just so entertaining. And every game in the series is so entertaining. It's just nice to always have like, I'm always looking forward to the next Ace Attorney game been a while since the last one but i'm still going to always be looking forward to the next one as long as they keep making them and every time one comes out i'm gonna have like a really rush of joy like i don't think they've really missed hard yet there's a couple games that are weaker than others but i will always be a fan for life because they just tell great stories with great characters and thanks to this first game for kicking it off it's it's always so entertaining yeah great game Thank you so much for presenting it to me as what mm-hmm. you wanted to play because it motivated me to finally get into the series and I am hooked in it. I am going to keep playing the rest of the trilogy. I, I've wishlisted the uh, other games on Switch, so I'm going to probably play the rest of those and uh, hope that the Edgeworth games become available in some way. Yeah. But yeah, no, I uh, love... You know what? Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. I just remembered one last 
piece of way this game impacted me, which is the reason I joined Twitter was to DM a friend about normal stuff relating to investigations too that was very normal and not illegal. And that friend was a shout out to my friend Ramona, who I don't I think deleted her Twitter account, um, which <laughs> I'm going to do soon as well. But I met so many people through Twitter, including yourself. And yeah. I just got on there really just to uh, talk about normal legal things relating to the Ace Attorney series. So this also had another weird impact on my life in that way. Yeah, no, it's very, yeah, that's a tremendous butterfly effect where like mm-hmm. uh, our brains are all broken forever now, but hell yeah. Great mm-hmm. stuff. No, wonderful game series. Um, I love the whole like defense attorney angle as like a way of like finding a victory state in a video game. At the end of every episode, I like to give space for recommendation. Like you've recommended a lot of stuff early in the episode in terms of like adventure mm-hmm. games and all that. But like while we're wrapping up, are there any other recommendations that you have for people who enjoy Ace Attorney? It doesn't even have to strictly be a video game. It can be any other kind of media. Yeah, this has been on my mind as like a challenge of what's something I haven't mentioned yet. And I do have a couple things. Um, I think the world of murder mysteries, like I think people are kind of into them now. The aforementioned Bernard Perot movies are not good, but are kind of a good bellwether of like, this is what people, I don't know, whatever reason I think it's having a moment. There's two TV series I really love. I think they're both kind of popular, but I don't mind plugging them some more. Poker Face on Peacock is a great How Ketchum. It's basically the Columbo remake with Natasha Lyonne, but they smartly did not call it Columbo and just called it something else and put a different gimmick on it. Mm-hmm. But it is very much Natasha Lyonne going from town to town solving murder mysteries, and it's just very fun. Even though you you know who did it at the beginning, but the, the how she gets to there even though she doesn't wind up impacting much, it's such a great character study. Like, yeah. like Ace Attorney, using murder mystery as like a character study is just very good stuff. And that's like episodic. Each episode's a new mystery. And then I also love the after party on Apple, which is each season is a murder mystery. And each witness gets their own episode to relay the events leading up to the murder in the style of a different genre. And that had its second season recently end. And both mysteries are really good. I thought the first season was just okay. All the genre stuff was fun and well executed, but the humor wasn't quite there. But it was a really good mystery and had some really great actors in it. I think the second season has been phenomenal. I don't know if that's a hot take or not, but I love the second season a lot more just because I think it got funnier while still retaining, again, character-based murder mystery where all of these people have such fun personalities and the genre exercises it gets to go through are all very entertaining. No, yeah, I mean, both awesome shouts and things that I've watched, which is always great. Poker Face is wonderful, very much flew under the people's radar because it's on Peacock of all things, and not a lot of people have that, but it is a really great, and what really makes it connect to Phoenix Wright is just, like, how, like, hesitant Natasha Leone's character is going in all these <clears> things. <throat> like, she's just sort of, like, dragged into it, and it's, like, very reluctant, and it's, like, that that whole, like, God damn it, I'm so fucking tired. The kind of shit is just, <laughs> yeah, is just, it's, it's wonderful. It's phenomenal. And like uh, with After Party, it's a good pool because like I like the first season, haven't watched the second season yet. Each episode's kind of like at the whim of whatever it's riffing on. So like uh, mm. if you don't love Fast and Furious or Ike Barinholtz, you're not going to like the Ike Barinholtz Fast and Furious like mm-hmm. you know, parody episode. Uh, but anything that gives Sam Richardson money is ultimately a net good. Anyway, point being, uh, After Party's whole thing is like each character has a bit. So that also falls in line with uh, Ace Attorney. So so both good shouts there. Do you have any other recommendations? Uh, I think I've recommended enough. <laughs> I think we're good. Okay, cool. I have two more recommendations. Uh, you know, one other TV show, uh, Better Call Saul, is about yeah. <laughs> is about a defense uh, lawyer, but an evil one 
or more specifically, like how a person who was initially well-intentioned ends up falling into the allure of evil. So watch that. It's phenomenal. Kim Wexler is the greatest character of all time. Watch that. Yeah. And then listen to Gerard Way's Hesitant Alien album because the album cover makes him look like Phoenix, right? And Mm. he has a song on that album called Maya the Psychic that isn't about Phoenix, right? But it is called Maya the Psychic. So I'm going to make that connection. I'm going to draw that parallel. So I'm looking at this now. Hesitant Alien. Oh, yeah. He does look a lot like Phoenix, right? He's literally in the same colored suit, red tie. And then again, there's a track called Maya the Psychic. I'm going to have to like, I'm going to have to find a way to bring that up in this episode somehow. Yeah, he must have been in it. I mean, it's so on the nose. He must be a fan. Uh, like, I think, like, the Maya the Psychic song is based off of a manga called oh, Mia or something. But, like, yeah, no, I, I, I have to say something. I have to say something. People have to know. But, yeah, those are the only two recommendations I have today. I feel like we brought the other parallels that we have up organically throughout the conversation. So it doesn't really bear repeating. But, Kev, it was awesome having you on to discuss this game. It means yeah. so much to me that I got to play it and that you showed it to me. Before you go, please mm-hmm. promote the hell out of yourself. Yeah, um, I think I said earlier I'm deleting my Twitter in the near future. <laughs> if you get it under the wire, I'm Max Rubo's roadie, but I do nothing there but try to finish my project of tweeting through Disney movies stoned. I don't interact with that site anymore besides that in group DMs. Um, I'm on Blue Sky, though, also at Max Rebo's roadie. And that's what I'll be posting for the foreseeable future if you have a Blue Sky account. I don't post as much anymore because the internet sucks. Oh, well. But I do have that podcast, as I mentioned at the top, Talking Trek to You. Uh, it is a podcast from me and my co-host go through Star Trek episode by episode. He is an expert. Star Trek, before starting this podcast, is one of the fran- one of the major franchises I had little knowledge of. I've seen a lot of the more recent stuff, but not any of the classic 60s to 90s stuff. So we are going through the original series right now. We finished the first season. We're on to the second. We also just finished a recap episode of season two of Strange New Worlds. So yeah, that's all great stuff to sort of jump in on. I guess what else do you want to say? Oh yeah, we do every other week on Fridays. So yeah, it takes us about a year to get through each season. So it'll take <laughs> us several decades to get through all of TNG and DS9 and Voyager. But we'll see if we get that far. But right now we're having a great time talking about TOS. So if you liked me here, check that out. As a fellow bi-weekly podcaster, I totally understand the frustration of like, I'd love to get this out at a higher rate, but unfortunately there's life. Join yep. the Patreon if you want more of this stuff. <laughs> But yeah, no, thank you so much. I enjoy the podcast uh, as somebody who's relatively new to Trek myself. Thank you so much for being on the show. That's Kev Kozer. Please, please follow them. And I included the links to their stuff in the description of this episode. So you have no excuse not to. Thank you. Thanks again, Kev. Thanks so much for being a part of the show. And thank you so much for listening to this episode of Select and Start. Once again, I'm your host, editor, and promoter, Kiefer. If you enjoyed this episode, please give the show a positive review wherever you're listening to it. Engagement helps the show and your feedback will improve it. And if you want to get more engaged, give the show a follow on Twitter at SelectPodStart. If you have thoughts about Phoenix Wright, Ace Attorney, or any other games we've discussed, send a DM or leave a comment and I'll gladly read it on the show. You can also support me on Patreon. If you pledge at least $1 a month, you will get early access to new episodes as well as extended episodes with exclusive content. That's on patreon.com slash Corner. You can find the link to that and the rest of my projects in the description of this episode. Select and Start is on the Moonshot Network, which is supported by its own Patreon. Find out more on moonshotpods.com. The art for this show is made by my best friend, Avery Ott. You can follow him on social media with the handle at Avery Robin Ott. That's A-V-R-Y Robin O-T-T. 
And the show's theme song was composed by Mike Petrie. You can check out the links in the description for their work as well as Kev's. All right. I think that's it. Hold it. Fuck you, Edgeworth. Fuck me yourself, right?